and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and thank you for listening to the 23rd episode of the show. Joining me this week is a very exciting guest who has been writing about games and technology for almost 20 years. Starting out as an editor at Ars Technia, he moved to become the technical editor at the popular future magazine, Maximum PC. After a stint as the technical editor, he became the magazine's editor-in-chief in 2004. For the next six years, he worked on bringing some of the best games and tech writers to the magazine, until 2010 when he decided to launch a new project. Alongside his friend Norman Chan, my guest launched Tested.com, a website about all sorts of subjects from techs and games to Star Wars and photography, whilst in the process enlisting the help of none other than Miss Busters, Adam Savage and Jamie Hindman. Last summer, he announced he'd be stepping away from Tested a bit to pursue a new project of his, a VR company focused around bringing TV shows to VR sets. My guest today is the CEO and founder of FooVR, Mr. Will Smith. Hello, Will. Hi, Liam. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. I've been, I, for a very long time, was watching nonstop tested videos. I think maybe the summer of 2014 when I was working on GTA 5 a lot, I was listening to all the tested podcasts, going back through the back catalog of stuff I'd missed. I, was, I did something about the addictiveness of the channel and the content you were producing at that time was made it very, very, very uh, watchable for long periods of time. So thank you for that. <laughs> hey, thank you. We, we had, I mean, we, we always joke that we made, that Tested was a site that we wanted to exist that didn't. And, and I think like uh, over the years, it kind of evolved into this really unique, weird, awesome, fun thing that, that is one of the most fun things I've ever had in a, in a job before. So it was, it was a, it was a, a, a work of pleasure i guess i think that was what was so amazing about tested was it never really tied itself down to anything like you could be talking about uh you could be talking about games uh brand new game uh or you you could have norman he'd be talking about photography uh you'd be talking about vr and you as soon as vr was starting to kick off you were very very into vr which obviously now shows a lot um and we and you know we could be in adam's uh shed and whatever his huge <laughs> big workspace and he could be talking about stuff he'd built i think that was what was so special about tested it was just cool stuff it didn't well, matter what it was cool stuff and and that was i mean literally that was that was the goal we wanted to make it very real and very honest about the things we were interested in and things kind of ebbed and flowed as our interest ebbed and flow, ebbed and waned in, in different topics so you know like one year i got really deep into coffee stuff and then got really good at making coffee in a couple of specific ways and kind of that trailed off as a result so um it, but it, it was it was like i said a labor of love and something i'm really really proud of so i'm, I'm glad that i always love to hear when people when people got something good out of that so it's it's, it's good to know that we weren't just kind of making something that was entertaining for us <laughs> in, in, a, in a weird vacuum and getting yelled at by people on youtube the rest of the time so <laughs> like everyone <laughs> yeah well you know um so let's talk about how you how tested came about obviously you were working at maximum pc for a long time uh very popular future magazine along with all the other very popular future magazines pc gamer and uh and bringing a lot of tech writers but then you decided to do this project tested.com what what sort of came about how what what made you want to do tested and how did you go about it well so so i had been watching um i met dave snyder who was one of our uh, the, the designer one of the founders of whiskey media the parent company of tested and giant bomb and comic vine and all those sites at, yeah. um south by southwest and i think 2007 we were on a panel with mike tatum who's one of the other whiskey founders and 
Ev Williams, who's the founder of Twitter and Blogger and Medium and all <laughs> wow. these other enormous sites. <laughs> and of course, the connection I made was with Dave, um, because that's the kind of nerd I am. But um, we had talked, Dave and Mike and the other whiskey founders and I had talked for years about doing a tech site. Um, and I saw what they'd done with Giant Bomb. Like, I loved the mixture of editorial content and video content and then user-generated stuff in the wiki and yeah. all the other amazing stuff that that community puts together. And and I said, look, technology is ripe to do this. We should we should do a whiskey media-style site about technology and, and show people that it's okay to have fun with technology and that... That, you know, at the at the time we were launching Tested in 2010, it was when the traditional gadget blogs, you know, the Engadgets and the Gizmodos and those guys were kind of reaching their peak, uh, peak cynicism. And and I was I was looking at this at my iPhone and I it's just amazing. It's a computer that's more powerful than my desktop computer was 10 years before. It has a better Internet connection, a higher resolution screen. It's better in every way. And it fits in my pocket. This is a this is a device full of wonder. And people were bitching that the chamfered edges were too sharp or gotten nicked up or whatever <laughs> dopey thing there. And, and, and so we wanted a way to celebrate technology, right? Yeah. So that's what we did. Um, and then we got hooked up with the Mythbusters in 2012 when Whiskey Media dissolved and and realized that there were kind of kindred spirits there. You know, Adam especially is is loves making things, loves sharing stories about about things that he's built and things that he's seen. And, and we, we were... It was a good way for us to showcase the thing that they were really passionate about, making new things um, rather than the thing that they were famous for, which was blowing shit up. So. Yeah. So I was, that's what I was going to ask. I, sort of, you obviously did this for a long time with Whiskey Media and then you moved. Um, how did Adam and Jamie sort of become more involved in the project? More so Adam than Jamie. Um because it was this sort of strange where there was Mythbusters going on. Obviously, Mythbusters was coming to sort of clo- uh, close in those few years as well. Um, but Adam, you know, was appearing in most YouTube videos. He was on the podcast and uh, hosting his own one as well. How did how did you sort of transition from this being your sort of uh, baby, this technology baby of yours, to then being like, okay, so we're going to bring in this big TV star, well, these two TV stars, and then be like, okay, so people are going to maybe come here now to watch those guys and maybe not so much what we actually started. Um, so that it was a, I'm not going to say that's not a weird time because it's always anytime, you know, something you work on is, is sold or trend as a big transition like that. It's, it's um, an exciting time. And, and in all senses of the word, right. Cause you don't know how that's going to go. We yeah. were really lucky um, in that when we first sat down with Adam and Jamie, they were both really excited about what we had built, right? They they looked at what we had done. They looked at the way we reviewed products, for example, and saw that we weren't doing just cursory reviews of things. We were actually spending time with them and and taking the time to take these really complex pieces of technology and, and break down what was good and what was bad and give yeah. real actionable advice. Um, and, and they had a lot of respect for that and were excited about interjecting themselves into the site that we had built and not the other way around. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was it was a really like it was kind of an organic process. If you recall, we started um I think Adam was on the podcast, we did a couple of videos and then those guys went on tour for like 3 months and disappeared, which was a little bit challenging. But we ended up it ended up being really good and and we kind of got to know each other on those early episodes of Still Untitled. You know, that was that was how we met Adam. And and Jamie's not super internet-y. I think he's stepped away from the site a little bit now. 
um, as he as Mythbusters is over and he's kind of focusing on personal projects. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was really organic and, and we realized that Adam was the same kind of nerd that we were and Adam realized that we were <laughs> the same kind of nerd that he is. And, and like, we have this shared love of film, um, Adam, Adam and Norm and I, uh, and, and kind of bonded and then started really working together much more closely as Mythbusters wound down and, and, uh, Adam and Norm are of course carrying that forward and I'm still doing still entitled, uh, fairly regularly as I have. Yeah. Time. Yeah. You're so. still, quite yeah. frequent on the on the a site. regular as they yeah. say in the business <laughs> a regular contributor <laughs> so it's it sort of sounds like a perfect marriage then everything sort of came together very well um that was i think what was so special about uh, tested as well um there was no cynicism even even when you were talking about films that weren't so good or you were talking about technology that wasn't so good you were also always very enthusiastic about what it could do what it, what the potential was well, and i think that was always really like this sort of fresh idea that you know what it, it, this isn't so good and there are a lot of better things out there but you know it has the potential to be good just to be clear like we 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 were we it's always a fine balance between being Pollyanna-ish on one side and kind of, you know, not not seeing what's important, um, and giving actionable, constructive advice for cust- for people who are going to spend their money on this stuff. Like, I, yeah, I there's nothing that makes me more angry than a bad phone review because most people, especially in the United States, buy those phones on contracts and then they're going to be stuck with that thing for two years if it's garbage. Yeah, and especially in those early days of the smartphone, you know, 2010, we were still seeing loads and loads of really terrible android phones um and and if you got stuck with one of those you would have been stuck with it until 2012 right that like that is a really really long time so so we were always really careful to to like be really clear you sh- this is a phone that's worth your money this is something that is not worth your money don't buy it don't spend money on this dumb thing <laughs> save it and use it on something good instead that's going to actually bring you joy so uh, last uh, last summer, you said you were going to be sort of stepping away from Tested a lot more and focusing on your new project, which is Foo VR, which uh, after following you for a long time, kind of almost seemed like a natural progression because as soon as the trade shows were showing uh, more of the Oculus, more of the Vive uh, and more VR, you were seemingly a lot more VR focused yourself personally. I think, like you said about the coffee um you sort of got enthusiastic about the coffee. It felt like you got very enthusiastic about VR and what is potentially happening with VR. And uh, it was, I was, I was reading your post and um, thinking this, this seems like the perfect step for Will to move on to. He seems very VR focused right now and him doing a VR project sounds like a really good idea. So what was your sort of thinking about stepping into this VR project, which on your on your own as well? Well, so as with Tested, you know, Tested, I was working at a magazine called Maximum PC. There's an important lesson there about not putting the name of your platform in the publication that you're working on. Didn't yeah. learn it this time either, but <laughs> we saw the we saw the rise of the smartphone at Maximum PC, and and you know, I realized that that was suddenly going to become the most important computer you own. With VR, it was a similar path. Yeah, you know, when we first saw the Rift and 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 saw how the DK one and pre DK one and and even DK two, uh, the you know the early dev kits were being used as kind of interesting monitors for computer games. I realized that that was going to be really important for gaming, but I didn't didn't see it as a revolution in computing. It wasn't okay. until we saw the Vive and Oculus Touch and saw 
what adding hands to that interface does, and then also how quickly your brain is able to make the leap from, oh, this is a, just a wireframe head and a wireframe pair of hands to, no, no, that's a person. It's just is a kind of weird representation of the person based just on really body body language. Um, when I saw that, I realized that there was something something much more important here. And, and, you know, having your hands in a 3D representation that's not a, not a 3D projection onto a 2D plane is a really, really powerful computing environment that's, that's really the first native interface for our brain that we've had. Um, so once I realized that, I, had to, I knew I had to go do something. And I looked at what I know how to do and um, what I'm good at and, and kind of worked with some folks who are much smarter than me to put something together that, that um, I, I think is really exciting and, and seems like the audience has been pretty stoked about it too. It's funny because I still think VR try uh, people who make VR content or make VR programs are still trying to figure out what exactly works in VR. There's this learning process right now about what does work and what doesn't work, especially with there being a variety of different ways you can control things in VR. Obviously, the Oculus you use an Xbox One controller, mm-hmm. uh, the Vive you use the special controllers that are really really responsive and a lot more. How I feel that's how you should interact with VR. Um. And then, obviously, PlayStation VR is going to be with a PlayStation 4 controller, very similar to Oculus. So I I still think people are trying to figure out what exactly is happening. I think yours is very interesting because it is this sort of... You don't need to do anything other than put put a headset on. And then you're like in a TV studio. And I've watched the first episode uh, uh, with uh, Jake Rodkin and the guys from mm-hmm. uh, Campo Santo. And um, even without VR on, uh, unfortunately, I don't have the means of using a VR headset at the moment. But it seems very really interesting. It, it's something I want to do. I want to be able to be sat down in like a TV studio watching like a live conversation between these creators who I really enjoy listening to. And it being this really immersive experience. Well, it, it's very personal, right? Uh, it's it's yeah. Usually, if you watch if you watch the if you watch Fallon in the in the states or Graham Norton in the UK, I guess then then <laughs> you know you you have this. I look, I love I love talk shows. It's a it's a it's a thing I've been a fan of for a really long time. Uh, but you watch it at home, you have a really close up shot. You you feel like you're sitting right there. If you go to the live studio audience, if you've ever gone to the taping of one of those, then you you don't have you're sitting in stands way back behind the cameras and up above everybody, and it's not it's it doesn't have the same kind of immediacy. But it's also really special. You get to see kind of warts and all what goes on, you know, what, what's going on behind the scenes. It's like going to a live sporting event versus watching it on TV. Yeah. I, I just, I wanted to build a way for people to make that live to tape kind of um, content, those, those shows in VR and make them interactive and 3D rendered. Cause like, look, I, I think that when you take over fully two of people's five senses or six senses, depending on how you, how you evaluate some different stuff, I think it's really important that you that you give them stuff to do that's interesting and you don't just put them in a bubble of video and expect them to stay engaged for however long your show runs. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to build places, that, ways to take people to impossible places and show them things that just don't exist, can't exist, or are too expensive to make in the real world, which is why in the Firewatch episode with Jake and Sean, we talk for a couple of minutes and then we jump into the watchtower and we yeah. give people this fully 3D rendered environment that if they're on the vibe, they can get up and walk around. They can pick stuff up. They can look at it. They can they can see exactly what we're talking about at any given moment. And and it's it's a it's I mean, look, I 
whenever somebody says, oh, look, we've created a whole new medium, you sound like a crazy person. So I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but it's it's something that's, it's it's more, it's it's something that couldn't exist outside of VR, which is to me the most exciting part of what we've built so far. But I mean, that's just, that's just the start. We have more stuff, more different kinds of shows coming, hopefully later this year. Well, it feels like the sort of... The ideas you can put behind it is it's just endless. The whole talking to creators and then jumping into maybe an environment of their game and uh, talking a bit more in depth about creation of stuff uh, just sounds uh, unreal about that. If you think about all the different creators out there, like if you're speaking to various indie developers, um, is this? I spoke to William Pugh recently, the mm-hmm. creator of the Stanley Parable. Speaking with him, jumping in the Stanley Parable levels, having a walk around and just sounds... Sounds great. Well, and we're not just limited <laughs> to games either, right? We can, we, yeah. Like we're booking the first run of the show right now, and it looks like we're going to have a, a biochemist on, a biophysical, uh, uh, a molecular biologist rather on. We're going to have um, some filmmakers. You know, there's 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 a ton of interesting opportunities to to show people these things that are impossible and give them entirely new context into how the world around them works. And we're going to take advantage of all that stuff and, and hopefully really kind of stretch the legs on, on what you can do with VR. So before we move on to talk about your games then, and specifically the eight games you've chosen today, what is the sort of uh, the next few months for Foo VR? Obviously we've seen the first episode now and you uh, said you're creating this first batch of the, the sort of, I guess, season one of the show maybe yeah, um that, that's fair um what 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 is the maybe time scale for when people are going to sort of see this kind of stuff <laughs> i'm not gonna uh, uh what, what is it valve always says when it's done when it's um, done <laughs> yeah uh, there's no uh basically so the the firewatch episode we we got far enough along into building this that we realized we had to actually make a real piece of content so we could see what the workflow was right um that's what the firewatch episode is if we were smart we probably wouldn't have released it but the opportunity to get out with the first wave of headsets was was too good to pass up. So yeah, yeah. Um, and we wanted to see what like we were building this in a vacuum. We it's kind of weird, right? It's there's avatars. The animation is is less janky with every release, but it's a little bit janky, and and we didn't the, know what how people were going to react. So we wanted the to put it out sh- there. The Firewatch episode seemed a bit more of a proof of concept than an actual sort of, okay, this is going to be the the actual show. It's more yeah. of like, this is the idea we have. This is how well it works now. Give us some time and, you know, it's going to be even better. That's exactly it. And and, and it was good to get a, a kind of sanity check from the audience to see if they were going to be into that even. I did. I, I you know, until we released that, I wasn't sure that people would sit, sit in VR for 20 minutes to watch a talk show, right? Um, but we learned a bunch of good stuff out from doing that and, and we're building the tools to let us produce this on a more regular basis. Uh, so there's a lot of back end work that has to happen and, and it's all progressing. It's just, you know, as you know, from making games, this stuff takes time. So, yes. Yeah. Oh, well maybe by the time it does come out, I'll have a means of checking out in VR. Cause I really, there's so many VR things I want to check out and that is absolutely one of the top. I like the idea of, a. I don't particularly like the idea of interacting in VR. I like experiencing more things happening around me. Um, kind of like 3D cinema, but a hundred times better. Um, so that kind of thing uh, really, really uh, appeals to me. So I'm looking forward to trying it. Cool. Well, hopefully we'll we'll be out. And people always ask, we'll, we'll have versions for Gear VR and all that stuff when, when the when the time is right and when, when we have yeah. it working as well as we want it to work. So. 
Okay, excellent. Well, you are here today to talk about the game. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to finish season one of FUVR because you're being sent to a deserted island. Oh, uh, no. So, um, well, all that talk we just had was kind of pointless. <laughs> well, this is this is awkward. My, my <laughs> wife and daughter are going to be really disappointed when I don't come back from this podcast. That's what happens when you uh, reply to the email I send you. Originally, everyone falls into this trap of now you're being... Now your future destiny has, is in my hands. So yeah, you are here to talk about the eight games you've chosen for a deserted island uh, today. And you've got a very interesting list and one that features two games that were only released within the last two months, which is uh, either a very good sign of the, their quality uh, or how much you've been dedicating to gaming recently, <laughs> that if, they've infected your brain. If, if you had asked me to do this in, let's say, March, it would be a pretty substantially different list i think so oh okay very yeah. interesting so we're gonna jump into the games uh jump into the talk about the first game now so let's listen to some music and dive right into it So the first game on your list today, Will, you've chosen specifically because of two expansions, I believe. So the first game on your list today is an MMO, uh, one of the first big MMOs that inspired World of Warcraft as well. It released on PC in 1999. It's this huge 3D fantasy themed massive multiplayer uh, role playing game called everquest yeah and you've chosen it specifically for two expansions as well it's kind of up through the two expansions because they they um you know if, if you played the game which i think probably you haven't uh judging by our i i have not i i'm I, i'm about to turn 26 uh oh god i'm about to turn 26 so unfortunately i did not get to experience everquest when it came out i guess so uh, i i was about to turn nine yeah so wow. <laughs> so uh, just but starting my new my first job then so that's that's <laughs> wow okay. this, this was this was around your ars technica beginnings i imagine yeah i i reviewed everquest the launch version of everquest for ars technica which was you reviewed everquest them. oh <laughs> I, I might not have ever written the review i'm not entirely certain it, like it, it, it kind of consumed me for a while um, but, but it had a, it had a, it was a fascinating game because it was broken in the most interesting ways, especially from launch through, uh, the Scars of Elias, which was the third, second expansion, the third release for the game. Um, and, and they kind of started to, as they started to polish it, it got less and less interesting to me, but it was, it's a, it's an amazing, the, the initial release of that game was amazing for so many reasons. So, so when they launched the game, they, Everything was obscured in 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 almost like a Dark Souls ish way. 
They didn't tell you what, there were no spell descriptions. There were no quest indicators. There was no, the pathing was terrible for the, for the mobs in the game. And they really, they really didn't even give you very much information about uh, uh, how to pick a class or what the roles of the class would be. And, and, the MMO thing was new enough at this point that like the Holy Trinity that WoW established and 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 made really explicit wasn't even really that clear. So yeah, we knew that there were some classes that were better at tanking, that we knew that there were some healing classes. And then there were a whole bunch of these weird hybrids that kind of you they were good at some things and and you didn't know what their specific roles were gonna be. Yeah, because it was kind of like the it was, I guess, the second viable MMO uh, after Ultima Online. It kind of went Ultima Online, EverQuest, then then WoW. Um, and EverQuest was kind of this just amazing new experience to so many people who were like, I can be all these multiple different characters and interact with people who are other types of characters and we can work together. And it was just this the whole new experience. Well, it was, and it was first person too, which, which, you know, UO Ultima Online was a top down kind of, um, uh, what's it called? Isometric view, I guess. And, yeah. and the first person, the graphics were terrible even for the time, uh, but it was <laughs> the brutal difficulty, partly because the game was designed to be really hard. It was designed to have a really intense leveling curve. And also it was broken in really important ways. And combined with the obscurity gave it this, it was this really fascinating puzzle that took literally years to figure out. There were spells. I, I played a bard mainly. There were, there were songs in my spell book that I didn't know what they did until probably the third expansion, just because nobody would figured out how, like what a debuff, what you would use an aggro debuff, an aggro range debuff for. Right. Um, and it, and it made for this, this, that the 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 intense difficulty made for a thing that you had to play with friends so you had to have a group of people to play with i mean there were classes that could solo but it was inefficient and, and tedious um and and you basically generated these amazing stories kind of all the time in playing like you know the you the story of the guy who goes into a particular dungeon and fires an ae spell by accident accidentally aggros the boss who comes to the door of the dungeon and beats everything down there were like three dungeons that that could happen in if you didn't know what you were doing <laughs> um and then and then there was this amazing end game which really came to a head i think with velius and and planes of power which were the like i said the second and fourth expansions i think i can't remember yeah they were yeah um but they were they were raiding expansions and in the initial game the raid bosses the two dragons one of them i think was designed to be unbeatable at the at the max level that you could get with the gear that was available in the game <laughs> um and people you know there were no it wasn't like wow there were no hard raid limits so you people just threw people at it until the 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 internet connections couldn't handle any more people in the zone or the zone servers would crash um <laughs> and they kind of gradually learned and instead of making the encounters easier and more accessible i think they just made them harder and maybe more broken i don't know whether that was intentional or not but they added these these play uh uh um they were called planes you know different planes with different themes and they were just unbelievably difficult um and you needed 70 people in some cases to go in and, and beat them so it was it was this unforgiving amazing game and then velius came out and they added three factions that had this push-pull balance that was really difficult to figure out really really massive huge encounters and there was a loot progression for the first time through that through that um continent so you had to start by 
killing this one this one race of of monsters for a while and then you'd kill another one for a while so you'd get slightly better loot and then you'd go kill the dragons in the in the end and there were three tiers of dragons and it was it was it's just an amazing it's an amazing game um that that made me it reminded me of what what I liked about playing hard video games and it was the first thing that did that in the kind of modern modern age so was when uh, planes of power got released to kind of when you stopped playing because I think EverQuest, choosing EverQuest, you obviously get all of the expansions that come with it, which means you're now going to receive like 22 expansions because the last expansion got released in November of last year. This game is still being wow. developed and still being played now. Um, so you've you've got a long, long, long road to play all these games ahead of you um, and EverQuest being this huge one. But was Planes of Power around when you stopped playing or did you play a bit more after that? So Planes of Power came out around the time that I started having a serious job. Um, not that Ars Technica and my previous day jobs in that time frame weren't serious, but it, but it, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, I realized I needed to sit down and kind of put my nose to the grindstone and, and figure it out. And rating in EverQuest is not compatible with having a greater than 50 or 60 hours a week job. Um, also, my guild was on the wrong time zone for me. So when I moved to the West Coast, then all of a sudden I wasn't playing at the right times. Oh, and yeah. it, it just didn't work out. Um, but, you know, it was it was for me, they they looked at what they did with the Velius and then leveled that up one more time and built this. It's like 15 or 20 bosses deep. It's an incredible progression that took most... Uh, most guilds a year or more to work through and and part of this for me is just you, like this is an economy buy in terms of how much i can do and the amount of time like if you put me on an everquest server that starts at launch and every six months or year releases a new expansion i i would probably be okay like in terms of games i would have have that i could kill time with on a desert island that's that is an okay way to go as far as i look at it um Man, I didn't even talk about the sleeper. This was this is. <laughs> do you know about the sleeper in Velius? I, I do not know. Okay, so they the the there's there's dwarves where you kind of started and you could let them be your friends or you could start murdering them from day one. That was a new thing in MMOs, as far as I was aware of. You could then you progress to through through murdering the the frost giants. That that's another thing you had to do. And then you the frost giants would give you gear that would let you get into plane of growth and 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 the the temple the the temple of Vishan, which is where all the dragons lived. Um, there were a bunch of really interesting side dungeons too, and one of them was called the sleeper's tomb. It's the sleeper's tomb. The first time somebody went in and completed this kind of intense, you had to get a, first. You had to get a key. That was that was an intense process, as I recall. And once you had the key, then you had to go in and complete like a series of quests and kill a bunch of really hard bosses. And once you had done that, then the sleeper would awaken. And that was a server-wide event. The sleeper would come out and murder everybody that was in these these zones, <laughs> the player characters and everything. And then that that um that dungeon wouldn't be as good after that point. Like the good loot was gone from that dungeon forever. So like guilds had to, but but when you released him, you had a chance of getting some really good stuff just one time. So there was a this whole guild politicking thing that was really interesting that happened with that. And some some servers immediately killed the sleeper just because they wanted to be the first. And some servers let him live forever, basically, uh, or let him stay sleeping forever. And and like it was just such a weird. And of course, nothing was instanced. Also, 
So, yeah. so like you're fighting for spawns with other player characters, but it's not necessarily a PvP game. It's it's just a a hot mess of awesome. I I, I have deep love for for EverQuest, and like I, like you said, I stopped playing after Planes of Power. I'm sure there's good stuff after there, but but for me. You know, once you've once you've killed the gods, what is what does Kratos do next, right? <laughs> I guess he goes uh, to Iceland. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Well, yeah, he goes to fight some other gods instead. Um, obviously, then EverQuest inspired like World of Warcraft. Uh, and if you watch like the World of Warcraft documentary, they they explain how much they were playing EverQuest, and they were like, "We can take this and we can make our own sort of thing." And so it inspired that very much. Did you play World of Warcraft and? How did you feel coming from EverQuest to to World of Warcraft? So yeah, I played I played a lot about World of Warcraft in the first year or until Burning Crusade came out, basically. Okay, um, and I played I intentionally played a class that I played a warlock in WoW because I wanted to be able to solo because I knew I wasn't going to have time to group and and have that kind of time commitment a lot. But I loved I loved the I loved this I loved the way they sanded the rough edges off of EverQuest, but it also like I was the raid leader and a lot of times in our, in our guild and it's just, it was more challenging and fun for me to round up 70 people in EverQuest than it was to do 24, 48, I guess. I can't remember what the, what the cap was in, in wow. And because I didn't have time to raid really all the, all the kind of collection and farming requirements to raid and, and especially in early wow, made it impossible for me to do that you know with with everquest i could play really hard for a month or two after an expansion comes out hit the level cap and then show up once or twice a week for our shots at the spawns and 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 that was much more appealing to me it does seem like you sort of mm, didn't get the same experience with uh, having all these excellent rating parts due to time constraints with world of craft world of warcraft um i i did raid i mean i raided through anxia and those guys and and like they 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 made some amazing like their raid encounters were much better designed games and much more fair right but but there's something like just just you know spending six hours pulling plane of growth is is something that i it's a game experience i'll never forget and i'd love to have another shot to do it and realistically probably not going to happen unless i'm on a desert island someplace <laughs> that's very true speaking of the desert island then um usually when people take internet connection type uh, internet connection required games like mmos um you are allowed them um but you're not allowed to use uh aspects of it that would allow you to communicate with other players unless it was like in-game emotes so you can't use the chat because you might ask for help or try to escape from the mm. island and, and we and we can't have that no no of course not we can't we can't have that so are you going to be able to get on okay uh with what you want out of everquest without communicating with players through can, chat can i communicate in game only to like organize raids and stuff like that or find out where i need to be at what time or is it no communication whatsoever maybe we could set up a system where there's like a notice board and one of the guild leaders nails a notice onto a board in game and you can read it, but you got, you are unable to reply. Okay. Um, can I hit the button that says start the complete heal chain now? Like if, yes, it's, a, you, if it's a keyboard macro. Yeah, that would be fine. Any, okay. any keyboard macro that would allow you to either give like an, in, uh, like similar to overwatch now and you can have the, Heal me or okay. uh, cover me. Use your ultimates ready. Any Anything like that is okay. But not I'm at latitude XYZ and longitude MYF. No, um, nothing that, that would... That's probably frowned upon. 
Well, nothing that would... Yeah, exactly. Nothing that you are able to communicate. Like, okay. uh, Morse code. I, <laughs> I am that, here. That might be hard. Um, I, I'm sure... I'm, look, I'm sure it could probably work. I, I, I am confident in my ability to communicate within the constraints of the system. That would be fine then. So yeah. you can take EverQuest and you can take all 22 expansions with you. I only want and, like two or three, to be honest, but... <laughs> But you still get all. But okay. you haven't tried. You haven't tried the. That's true. And, you, and you're going to have a lot of time to try them. So I think I think that would be good. I would thinking about that. A game with 22 expansions. That's a really good idea of a game to take for a deserted island. That's a lot of content. It's it's free to play now, and I almost downloaded it to to open it up and type slash played just to see how many hours I put into EverQuest. But I I decided that was probably unwise uh, later, <laughs> at the last possible second. So. Um, it'll, I guess it'll have to remain a mystery. Well, excellent. That's an excellent start to the show and the first game being such a special one for you as well. So we're going to move on to the next game now, which is a lot newer. Um, <laughs> it's a game that only got released last month. Uh, well, actually at the, well, sort of end of the month before last in May. Um, so let's listen to some music and dive straight into it. Okay, Will, so before we move on to your second game today, uh, we're going to talk about the virtual deserted island that okay. you are trapped in. Um, you have listened to the show before, so mm-hmm. you know that you actually get to choose the deserted island that you are trapped in. Um, oh, we don't want you to be uncomfortable. We don't want you to be in any harm on our part. You're just trapped to play these games for all <laughs> for the rest of your days, but you can have the comfort of choosing uh, where from gaming you would like to be. So there, would no, there wouldn't be any human NPCs, but there could be like monsters that aren't humanoid type. Any, anyone you could communicate for help, essentially. Wow. Um, but uh, we've had places in the past like Outside Island from The Wind Waker. We've had The okay. Island of the Witness. Um, we've had the wonderful... Sh- uh, shropshire countryside of everybody's gone to the rapture and so all these kind mm. of lovely places to be is there anything that sort of comes to your head straight away about where you would oh, like to be trapped oh man all i can think of right now is yoshi's island and i can't think of a place i'd rather be trapped less um, <laughs> i mean shy guys aren't hard to deal with but it would get an, oh, it would get annoying after a while so sweet and so many little baby marios everywhere um man i i uh let's see famous islands games like wind waker is a world i would like to inhabit that is one of my that's probably my favorite zelda game by a pretty huge margin um it it doesn't necessarily have to be an island it would be a deserted it can be a deserted place so probably dm3 then quake one dm3 yeah i didn't put quake one on my list spoilers um but i spent i've spent hundreds of hours playing games on dm3 and I, I still think it's probably the greatest multiplayer map of all time. So, so yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with, I would just live inside. 
I'd probably get really, really hungry because there's no chance of food. It's quite um, small as well. Yeah, that's it's in probably a bad choice. I'm almost certainly going to regret this. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's like I, look. I don't want to be on. I don't want to be on dust. I don't want to be on. Hmm. Boy, this is this is this is an absolute killer. I should have really. Th- I I remember listening in the car uh, to to. I think I listened to the to Greg Casavan's episode. And yeah. I can't remember what he picked. Greg uh, chose the world of Okami, oh, which is but which has oh. been chosen twice on this oh, show. Man, that's super so, smart. so so essentially, he chose Japan, just a mystical version of Japan. I mean, isn't from from where I sit, all versions of Japan seem kind of mystical. Um, <laughs> the one I live right now is extremely warm. That's my reality. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, so on that front, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick. I think I'd pick, I'm going to pick the Shadows of the Colossus world. That's a good choice and one that we've not had so far. Oh, very, God. very, Oof. very, very green, but uh, uh, maybe a little empty. But you could go for very long walks in the mountains. I yeah, think. look, there's water. There's some. There's some hills. There's a lot of good zigzaggy turns that keep the loads from happening too slowly. Like I, yeah, I'm into that. There's that stone, big temple stone, in the middle. Yeah, stone temples you can play games in. Yeah, I never finished that game. It ends really happy, right? It's a it's a good ending for everybody involved. Like they they uh, it's it's the all happiest. live happily ever after. Yeah, it's, okay. It's the happiest. Nothing depressing about it at all. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. <laughs> okay, so the world of Shadow of the Colossus then is is where you're going to be stranded then. What Playing... could possibly go wrong? What what nothing really? Colossus. <laughs> the Colossus are the victims here. The Colossus are the Colossi are the victims in that game. Uh-oh. Um. So, the next game you're going to be playing in the world of Shadow of the Colossus is a game that came out on May 24th of this year for PC, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. It's the brand new game from Blizzard Entertainment that has pretty much dominated every gaming forum or any internet community about games for the past two months, uh, directed by Jeffrey Kaplan and Chris Metzen. It's Blizzard Entertainment's multiplayer first-person shooter game, Overwatch. Will... Please tell me why Overwatch, a game that's only been out for a month and a little bit, is deserving of being one of the final games you will play. Okay, so I've been in the closed beta for Overwatch for about five months now, so I've been playing for a fairly long time. Okay. Um, The thing that you said about WoW coming along and taking EverQuest and smoothing the edges off and making it good is, like, just to be clear, I have a thousand or more hours in TF2, and I, I it is my all-time most played multiplayer game right you know if we're ranking in number of hours played it's quake 3 halo 2 team fortress 2 everquest kind of counts as multiplayer right those are all kind of comparable comparable time spent tf2 the depth that you get with that class-based class-based gameplay i i love and it has a really neat meta with all the all the different items that are in the world now um, but I, I have played enough TF2 that I am probably good playing TF2 for a pretty forever at this point. Yeah. Um, and Overwatch came along about, you know, I started playing in the spring and it scratched the same kind of itches that, that TF2 does. It has a neat meta. There's a 21 classes or something. So there's always something new to learn. The maps are gorgeous. And the thing that they did with scoring so that instead of making it a, a, hey, who on the team has the best kill to death ratio? Yeah. They just made it. It's like it's like playing first person shooter golf, right? You're literally <laughs> just playing against your personal bests. 
And and that is incredibly freeing to me. And I've had more fun playing that than I have anything multiplayer competitive in, in since Modern Warfare 1, probably. It's It just has taken the whole gaming world by storm. And it is an incredible game. I've been playing it so much myself as well. And there's something very special about Overwatch. It's got that Blizzard polish that only Blizzard can do. And you have all these insane characters who in another game maybe like at the same time of overwatch's release was battleborn and they had interesting characters as well but they just have so much personality the design is so exceptionally uh good and then as you said it has this gameplay that in itself isn't competitive it's almost like a free fun runabout where you just sort of play bullet tennis with everyone <laughs> and um, you're just basically jumping around and having fun and uh it is a very special game and i, I actually when I, I was i was thinking for quite a numerous amount of weeks i was i was wondering when overwatch was going to appear oh does it come up yet it hasn't come up yet oh, no man. well so, I'm, a, I'm either the fool or the smart one i guess i was wondering how long it would be until overwatch appeared because i was thinking that would be a perfect game for a Desisted Island. It's brand new. There is so much that's going to happen with it. Uh, expansions, uh, not expansions, but new characters, new maps, and all that kind of stuff. The, the, the future of it looks really promising. Well, and, it, and it's also good for, like, I don't have a lot of pick-up-and-play games. I mean, I have a couple, but this is a game that I, like, if I have 20 minutes at lunch, then I'll load it up and, and, and play a quick quick round or two. Yeah, and, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's satisfying doing that, or it's satisfying sitting down on Sunday night and just playing for six hours until my fingers are bleeding and I'm cursing at the at the monitor and, and, and <laughs> those bastions and black and widowmakers, they're horrible people to play those classes. But but yeah, it's a it's a it's an amazing game and, and like it just makes me I'm in awe of what Blizzard has they, they came into a genre they've never really made that I'm aware of, maybe in the dark prehistory, but, but they don't, they don't make shooters and shooters traditionally are pretty hard. You know, there are some studios that are really good at them and some studios that are, that have a real up and down track record. And they came in and just knocked this one so far out of the park that like, I, I don't know. I don't know well, how you make a game that's better than this, that does the same kind of things. Absolutely. This seems like the pinnacle of like a multiplayer shooter team based. Um, it's weird because I saying that, um, they, they've never really made like an active game. It, it, well, Diablo is pretty active and Star, Starcraft yeah. are active, right? Yeah, but I mean like in a sense where it's, um, sp- well, with Starcraft, sometimes it can be split second to build decisions and Diablo is uh, maybe a split second sort of dodge roll or that kind of thing. But as in a, a competitive split second decision uh, game, I don't think Blizzard have made anything as fast as Overwatch before. Everything's been a, maybe a little drawn back, even with StarCraft um, and Hearthstone, obviously. Um, and it, it does seem like this new... It's like Blizzard doing this, oh, Blizzard are going to make a card game. I wonder how that'll turn out. Oh, it's the best card yeah. game ever. <laughs> oh, they're going to make an MMO. How's that? Oh, it's the best MMO ever. Oh, they're going to make a team-based shooter. How's that? Oh, it's the best one ever. And this consistent quality from Blizzard is mind-blowing. Well, so there's there's two things that are really interesting about this to me. If you if you if you make a plot and you put 
like visceral on one end and cerebral on the other, right? Where one is a, just a pure instinct Twitch game and one is something that you have to make these split second decisions that are really intense. Like StarCraft is on the cerebral end of that, right? Because yeah. you're, you're making these, you have to be very quick, but the decisions are, are you're doing math in your head at a really high level when you're good at StarCraft. I I, yeah. I mean, I'm terrible at StarCraft, so I, I'm probably completely wrong. <laughs> I um, tried to be good once. It, it didn't work out. It's, <laughs> I'm way too old for that. Um, on the other hand, you have... Um, you have a like a pure Twitch game, like your modern your your Call of Duties, right? Where you're just put the dot on the person's head and and click the mouse button, and then and then that problem solves itself. Um, and I think that this is this splits the difference in a way that just hits my monkey brain really at the right place. The other thing that's interesting about it is that like this, as I understand it, and this could be completely apocryphal, but this spun off of a many years in development not sequel but kind of mmo follow-up to wow so these characters have these deep rich backstories and like tons of dialogue and there's there's these amazing interactions that happen at the start of every level and i still hear new ones after putting probably a couple hundred hours into this game um so like i i'm just i can't believe that i'm saying this but i'm interested in playing another like i want them to make that mmo that they canceled now because i want to know more about i like these characters so much i want to know more about them it's amazing. Um, very big shout out to Danny O'Dwyer from GameSpot, who was a former guest of Final Games uh, and a good friend of mine. He made a four-part Overwatch documentary at the Blizzard, um, just before Blizz- uh, Overwatch launched at the Blizzard headquarters. And they spoke a lot about Titan, which was mm-hmm. this long-running MMO in development, a sequel to World of Warcraft that they were making. Um, I think a lot of people thought it might be more based around StarCraft. Uh, obviously, the name Titan sort of and the the sort of spacey theme they were going for, um, but it turns out that Overwatch came from the it was like the phoenix that rose from the burning ashes of Titan, and a lot of characters uh, like Tracer are characters that were in Titan. Oh. So it's very interesting well, to see how would the how would the combat would imagine an MMO with Overwatch's combat. Well, it's I mean if you think about it, that's that's kind of where the arenas for wow started right is that you the, yeah. the the challenge for that for me was that i didn't have time to level my guys up well enough to be competitive so <laughs> if you take that incredible time commitment out to go out and grind armor and grind faction to get the right armor and all that stuff then all of a sudden like that like i would love to play wow the arena without all the loot stuff on top which i realize is, defeats the purpose of the game for like probably 90% of that audience. But mechanically, <laughs> that class-based push and pull was really interesting yeah. to me. And that's what they did a really neat job capturing. So obviously, Overwatch is brand new, and a lot of people are still experimenting with it, and we're starting to see competitive Overwatch teams come now from major esports teams. Um, who have you been playing? What characters are you enjoying? Um, everyone's sort of fitting into who their main characters are going to be now. I know I am. How about you? Are you still experimenting or have you got like one or two main main people? Well, so keeping in mind that I played a, a fair amount during the beta, like oh, I yeah, came I, in yeah. I came in knowing that my like my diva game is strong despite diva being a little bit on the the weak side of the meta these days. Um I I like so the thing I like about the game is that each character has its own kind of rhythm. So diva is very much a push pull and I tend to be a little bit more aggressive with her because if you even if you mess up really bad and get killed, you still have that eject and you have the opportunity to escape, which is which is and and get another mech, which is super fun. 
Um, I play a lot of fair. I play a lot of soldier 76. I love um, soldier 76. And I love, love, love playing Reinhardt when the team is, is good. And, 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 and for me, um, I've been, so I, when I played TF2, I mained uh medic and soldier basically. Um, okay. And, and so with this, like mercy is a, like the the fun thing about this is they took those core archetypes from TF2 that everybody's familiar with and they twisted them just a little bit so that if you play them just the way you did in TF2 you're going to be competent but not great and if you kind of lean into the things that make say mercy different from the doctor in TF2 like the the ability to boost damage selectively yeah. you can really be amazing and your skills transfer over really really quickly so like I like I, I love that I love that the ability to look at the meta of the game and see where your team's going wrong and make that one character switch that helps the whole team swing to to you know either gets just enough damage or just enough tanking or or just enough healing to push through and 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 turn a, a, an L into a W. It's 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 funny you say that as well. Like the game has you know four classes. You can break it down to offense, defense, tank, and support. But within that, you have like tank characters like Reinhardt or Roadhog and they are like two diff- completely different play styles uh, that fit this certain role or you have like two different uh, offense characters like Tracer and Genji and they just play so differently and you can be really good with one or and really bad with the other but it, I find it so incredible that it, it's like each uh, class has maybe its own sort of sub classes like faster offense, mm-hmm. tanky offense and Well they're hybrids right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Diva and Diva and Roadhog are 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 attack or Roadhog is a defense tank hybrid. Diva yeah. is an attack tank hybrid. Or probably Winston is also an attack tank hybrid. Frankly, and and you have these really like it, there's there's really something there for everyone. I I think that they pulled a lot of that from the stuff that they learned from Heroes of the Storm and Dota and and League of Legends and those kinds of games because those games are all seem to be all about hybrids from from the little bit I know about them from watching competitive players. But yeah, because even playing. Heroes of the Storm is very special in the way it's a MOBA where team kills are group kills and you don't you don't really traditionally have the same roles that you would in a game of League of Legends, like a jungle, a, a support, a mid, and that kind of stuff. It, they're all sort of hybrid characters. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I just, I think that there's, I think I'm really excited to see how the, as somebody who's, who usually avoids games with deep meta, I'm really excited to see how the meta evolves with this game and, and how um, Blizzard balances. Like, I like, like th- this game lives and dies based on how well Blizzard balances yeah um balances the characters and they did it it was fascinating to watch that during the beta and and watch the kind of bigger chances they took when it was a a closed uh, a closed ecosystem and they wanted to see how stuff would break and 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 that um but yeah i i can't i can't get enough i i see myself playing this for a very long time excellent well you're gonna have loads of time while (laughs) in the world of shadow of the colossus but now we're going to talk about your next game which also happens to be a very very recent game um released in may as well as overwatch that was a may was a good month for you this year i I guess so yeah i didn't so when (laughs) i sent you the list i realized that i didn't really order it so these are i should i should say these are in no particular order other than the order in which i wrote them down 
Sometimes I like to uh, fiddle with the list a little bit, but this one I felt, uh, I thought maybe you'd crafted it, but obviously there's, no there's particular. A, there's a rhythm when I look at it. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's threads. Maybe it happened by accident subconsciously. <laughs> well, we're going to listen to some music from this next game and then we're going to dive straight into it. Okay, Will, so we're sort of slowing it down now from Overwatch. We are, we've used uh, Trace's rewind mechanic and we're, we're slowing it down a little bit now. You might uh, play these games differently than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking a bit more about a strategy game now. Um, a brand new strategy game from the experts in strategy, Paradox Development. It was released on the 9th of May for PC and Linux. Um, it's a grand strategy video they call them with grand these ones because i think they take place in space um it revolves around space exploration managing an empire and uh, diplomacy and warfare and all those kind of wonderful things um it's stellaris yeah so i'm i'm a sucker for 4x games i don't typically have time to really play 4x games usually i'll 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 buy one and I'll play like one or two runs through the story, you know, through, through the campaign kind of. Yeah. And then then I leave it alone. But what I really want to do is play those like a roguelike, right? So I want to just get in there and break the mechanics and figure out how everything works and, and you know, understand that game at a, at a really core level. Um, and Stellaris is the most recent, I think, in, the, in a pretty long lineage of kind of 4X, 4X space games. Um, but they pull a little bit of the stuff that ma- that makes Crusader Kings and those types of games really interesting into it. So okay, um, I I put this on here. This is a speculative ad, though, really for me because I haven't spent that that much time. Um, I, I I've done probably two and a quarter campaigns th- through here at this point. One of them flamed out incredibly early because I made some really poor choices about my economy. <laughs> um, one of them I got all the way to the end and then just wasn't quite badass. And I, you know, I was the Cardassians and the Federation was next door, and uh, and then I had a couple of 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 runs that just petered out really early because I I was in a bad place. I started unlucky, um, and and part of. As I've as I've explored more roguelikes and, and hard games over the last few years, I realized that the way to play the way for me at least to play games like Civilization and and four X space games and and grand strategy games like Crusader Kings is to play them like a roguelike. Never save scum. Just play them all the way through on hardcore. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, then you get to try again. So. Explain to me then what is good about Stellaris because I have been sort of watching Stellaris quite closely. Um, 
strategy games always, especially 4X strategy games, always interest me immensely. But I think I'm too stupid to play them. Um, I always end up trying, like Crusader Kings, I spent hours and hours playing Crusader Kings, but I always find myself wanting to fast forward. Fast forward. And just always constantly... fast forward. No, you should always, always fast forward. Like, the only time you should slow down is when stuff gets too busy. Like, if you get no... Like, like, so, with Stellaris, set up your initial empire, crank the speed up at least 2x and maybe 4x, whatever whatever the second click is, um, and then slow it down when you when you start to get into trouble, right? Like, okay. that's... You should be putting out fires. You shouldn't be waiting for interesting things to happen. Um, so... There's a bunch of things that happen with a game like Solaris. the The economy is really interesting to me because, like, that's 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 the there's stages to this game. So you you spend the early part of the time expanding the empire, getting your economy cranking, so that then you can expand the empire more and get your economy cranking, and then eventually okay. you'll piss somebody off, and they'll come at you with guns, and and you better be ready for the guns when that comes, or else. You're gonna to have to learn a new language, and and you know, <laughs> the enslaving happens. That's not good. Um, but it, it, it's there's kind of an anything. The thing that the the paradox folks do really well is they let anything happen, right? So you can totally have your empire be subjugated by another more technologically advanced empire. I should step back and say I love I love hardcore science. I love hard science fiction. I love the idea that you know if if this if our universe if our if our universe is fifteen billion years old sorry billion or trillion billion I can't remember anyway billion billion, billion yeah so if our universe is fifteen billion years old we've reached this state of technological development in four or five fifty thousand years if you want to be generous where are the other you know sentient creatures in, in yeah. space. Like games like this answer them because you start and you start as a as a technological backwater and then have to, you know, beg, borrow, steal your way to to or just research like crazy and get that economy really hammered um, so that you can you can kind of take over if you want to take over the galaxy. Um, So, yeah, like, look, I maybe it says more about my psychological um, proclivities than anything else that I want to rule the galaxy, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, what can I say? It's fun. It's funny because these games always seem like th- that, especially with paradox games, the, uh, the endless limitations almost, um, you can almost do anything and i like that idea i like going in and trying to rule the galaxy or being this very small race of people and then taking over planets um but i always end up getting to the point where i just lose a great example of this is (laughs) i went uh in gamescom 2011 i had an appointment to go to the paradox uh business booth and play crusader kings 2 before it came out Mm -hmm. and i was playing crusader kings 2 and uh I ended up just fast forwarding, fast forwarding, constantly fast forwarding, and so much stuff happens. And and the the paradox representative who was sitting next to me, they were like, "Slow down, you need to deal with this, you need to deal with this." And I was like, "No, I just want to rule. I just want to rule the <laughs> the countries. I want to make all of my people bow down to me." But I just can't. I don't. I can't seem to slow myself down playing these games enough to be able to have long campaigns. Um. And I'm wondering with Stellaris if I can do that because I am very interested in space uh, strategy games. I, like yourself, I really enjoy science fiction and the idea of ruling the galaxy does seem like a fun one. So, um, 
So the thing that they do, they do a couple of things here to make that a little bit more accessible. One, you don't have all the kind of lineage stuff. Well, first, Crusader Kings is a terrible, terrible game to try to get a sense of at a trade show in yeah. whatever, 20 minutes or 40, even an to hour. Be fair, though, to be fair, though, I did go through four generations of a family oh, and, and kill. Yeah, I, I just kept <laughs> fast forwarding. I don't think the Paradox people were very happy with me. I would say they were probably <laughs> unimpressed. But, you know. Yeah, probably. It's, it's, that's... that's <laughs> Look, you shouldn't. Anyway, that's a that's a off topic conversation, <laughs> probably. But um, it's one of the things that they do that I like in this, and I I haven't played a lot of other. Most of my exposure to Paradox games comes from listening to Idle Thumbs guys talk about playing Crusader Kings. Yeah. Um, and I I like I like their games because they're kind of story generators in the same way that like FTL or or you know one of those kind of roguelike story based games is you know you, you're you end up you play Stellaris and you tell you tell the story of this empire that you've built um they let you in fact actually they don't let you they force you to assign once you get beyond a certain number of planets you have to start assigning planets into sectors and then assign a governor to manage that sector because it just becomes like the micromanagement of getting the the economy going on each planet becomes way too much work really really quickly and and by forcing you to do that you they don't put you in a situation where you're trying to manage all this minutia of like do we does this should this plan be making more food i can't tell you know or should they be generating research or what what part of the economy should they be cranking on you just say look i want this sector to be the the battleship sector i want this sector to be the research sector i want the sector to be the energy the money sector and yeah. and then it kind of works itself out which is at first i was kind of bummed about and then once i realized how big my 40,000 planet galaxy or whatever was going to get. <laughs> I was like, Oh, this is, I'm really, really glad that this isn't, this isn't a thing that, that, um, that, uh, yeah, that, that I was forced to manage myself. Okay. So then for someone like me who is, cause Stellaris is still a brand new game. So I'm sure many people listening to this have maybe th- thought about buying it, but haven't yet. Yeah. Um, so for like me who has been following it for a while now and is interested in getting it, what would be your main tips for starting a campaign in Stellaris right now? Oh, so, man, that's a good question. Okay, so if you're starting out on any of these kind of 4X games, always, it, it depends on whether you're going if to, you, if you come into this and you're like, I just want to get the flavor of this thing. I bought it in the Steam sale. It was, you know, this is a bad example because this just came out, but it, I bought it for, I bought Civ 5 for $6 in the Steam sale. I want to get a, I want to see what Civ 5 is about. Um, set it to easy. Set a spark, a, a relatively mid-sized world without too many other entities in it, other other civilizations or whatever. Um, in this case, it would be races. So so set a pretty good-sized galaxy, put like four or five ga- uh, races in it, and and then let it rip. You want to give yourself time to to establish, to understand a little bit about how the game works before people start coming at you with guns, um, because you'll you'll get wiped out really really quickly. And you want to, frankly, you want to really roll over some less technologically advanced civilizations before you have to fight somebody who has an equal level of technology in this game. So, you know, find some some backwater, raise them up, and then come at them with guns and and, and see how it works out. Um, and if you do that and you're into it, then you'll know. And if you don't, then, then, you know, maybe the game's not for you. That's okay. Everybody shouldn't play everything, right? Yeah, that's true. So... Currently on the Steam sale, it's not that much discounted, but it's about $35, I think. It's about 3,500 yen, which equivalents to about $35. Um, so, 
I might. I might. I might after this have to have to and spend the weekend playing it. It's. uh, Yeah. Like, look, you can get crazy in here, too. You can design your own ships. You can. Like, but 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 the thing that Paradox did really well is you don't have to. Like, you're not going to cripple your game if you don't go into the ship designer. And actually, you're probably more likely to cripple your game if you do go into the ship designer. Um, but but they smooth over a lot of the rough edges in a genre that typically doesn't have any rough edges at all smoothed over. So, okay, that, that's, well, that's my glowing endorsement of Stellaris, <laughs> I guess. I think this is the straw that broke the camel's back then. I think after this, I'm going to have to... Make my first purchase of this Steam sale. It's for science. It. You you have no choice. For science. Yeah, for, for science. science. Yes, indeed. Excellent. Wow. We're going to move on to uh, a game now that has been around for a while, quite a bit now, but is still played quite avidly uh, by many people um, these days. So let's listen to some music from the next game and dive straight into it. game you're going to be playing in your wonderful shadow of colossus world will is spelunky it's I'm, a oh, sorry no, go ahead i was just gonna say i i have to say i love i don't know what song you played there but i love it because all of the music in this game is delightful <laughs> breaking breaking the behind the scenes curtain there with us not actually listening to any live music and it being edited in later i'm <laughs> oh, sorry sorry spoilers <laughs> No, so yeah, so the next game you've chosen uh, for your list today is the excellent game by Derek Yu, the uh, roguelike platformer that originally started out as a game on PC, uh, a Flash game, and then got remade into a a remake for the Xbox Live Arcade in 2012. Players explore procedurally generated caves and search for treasure and and look for idols. It's a superb game. Why is Spelunky the fourth game you've chosen today, Will? Um, Well, uh, I thought about it after Stellaris, probably, when I was making my list, but um, it's the fourth game... I I was introduced to Spelunky by a friend who said, hey, knowing the kind of games that you like, you're going to be really into this. And I did the thing that I think a lot of people did uh, when they first were, were exposed to Spelunky, where they downloaded it, they played it twice and bounced off of it. And were like, ah, that's kind of neat. It's like Mario, but with a whip and the levels are different every time. That's that's cool. And then um, over the next, I mean, I don't know, the year, year or two after it were introduced, after it was released, it became really clear that there's an incredible depth to this game. So if there's a common theme here, I guess it's that I picked stuff that has a lot of depth that I can really sink my teeth into. Um, well, oh, no, well I think as well. Uh, well, I think as well. It's funny. Uh, Will sent me his games over and he also sent me a cut list. He's like, <laughs> he sent me 13 games that he was like, I would, uh, essentially I might want to chat about these as well. Um, to give you a heads up, these are the games that didn't make it, but 
mean a lot to me as well. And one, two, three, or maybe four of those games are all roguelike games as well. So uh, we you had like Rogue Legacy, Endless Dungeon, FTL, and obviously now you have Spelunky. Is roguelikes a genre you like a lot of? I um the roguelikes are were very trendy for a while i think they probably still are um i for this challenge specifically for the games that i'm going to play for the rest of my life yeah. the compelling nature of procedurally generated games that are kind of infinitely replayable is yeah. is seemed seemed important um <laughs> just from a pure pure economics of the situation um but but the the fact of the matter is I'm really phenomenally bad at Spelunky, despite having spent probably 200 hours playing it. Um, you know, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard game um, in, in ev- so hard. every sense of the word, but it's, 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 it's fair in a way that a lot of other roguelikes kind of are like FTL, which I also, I am, I just adore I, I look at FTL as a story generation machine that happens to be a roguelike. Like, like if I want to role play that I'm the captain of a Federation starship, which is not a thing that I do consciously, but it has happened to me by accident <laughs> before. Um, FTL is a good framework for, for setting up like those encounters. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's not fair. It's by no, by no, by no, in no sense of the word is, is FTL a fair game. It's going to hit you really really hard and if you get to the end of that game and beat the final bosses it's because you've been both lucky and really really uh skilled um spelunky on the other hand is is very fair like you can you should be able to traverse each level without using any bombs or ropes or any of your very precious items um occasionally there's a bug that results you in you using a bomb but i've seen that maybe a half dozen times in thousands of plays um and it's it's just it's it's just it's sublime, right? It's you, the character, the enemies behave in really predictable ways. The behaviors emerge from the different interactions of the, of the monsters and the traps and the geometry of the world and the, you know, the slippery floors and the ice levels and all the different things that can happen in that game. And when you go back and look at the tape, you're like, Oh, right. I should have seen that when I was going to drop the dog here, it was going to fire an arrow that was going to aggro the shopkeeper. (laughs) And then the shopkeeper was going to come out and he was probably going to bounce around randomly for a little bit, but he was going to shoot the bomb crate behind me. That was then going to explode firing me across the level into the spikes and that chain reaction. Yeah. Like it's, 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 it's very, very predictable. And, and actually Derek, you wrote a book for, um, the boss fight books uh, folks uh, about Spelunky. Yeah. Very I'm, recently. Yeah. It just came out and it's, it's, if you're into this kind of game at all, you should absolutely give it a read because it's fabulous. Um, and, and lets you, it, it, it's been interesting to watch my assumptions of his decisions of what his choices were and what his decisions were versus what his actual recollection of his decisions and choices as he's making <laughs> this game. Were. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I, I, eventually there will be a better roguelike than Spelunky a roguelike platformer than Spelunky I'm sure but I I haven't found it yet so that's that's the one I'm taking with me for the for the rest of my life on the on the desert island so what I found about Spelunky players specifically is because they are kind of like these players Spelunky has a very dedicated fan base of people I found that they always have one version of Spelunky available at like any time 
to play and they'll play maybe a few times a week or they'll have a run through before bed uh, a lot of people play on the playstation vita it's very easy to access and that kind of stuff are, are you one of those players as well um so yeah i play i have a i'm looking at a vita right now um, it's installed <laughs> on pretty much every computer I own. I, in the depths of my Spelunky days, I actually, I have a little Intel Nuke machine. It's a little PC with integrated graphics, but it plays Spelunky really well. And I had to go on a month long trip someplace. So I actually took that and an HDMI cable and a PlayStation 4 controller and played Spelunky plugged into a hotel HDMI port in Baltimore every night for of the month that I was there. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not really, I don't really have a platform of choice. I prefer the DualShock pretty hard to any of the other controllers for playing this. And I, and I don't okay. understand how anybody plays this with a game, with a, a keyboard. I think those people are, are bad, bad, crazy. <laughs> um, Spe- speaking of like Spelunky players, then uh, I, I bring this up a lot and I don't know why. I think I'm, I'm just fascinated with it. And this weekend is the start of Summer Games Done Quick, the mm-hmm. awesome speedrunning charity. And they do a lot of uh, Spelunky runs. Usually um, it's like competitive ones where they'll have four players go at the same time uh, and try and get it through it as quickly as possible. On um, the same seat, I assume, right? Or yeah, no? yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I, if it's a, it's mind-blowing. I'm not very good at Spelunky. I've never finished it. Um, I, I haven't played it that much. I've never, like, super hardcore gotten in, into it. I do own it on the Vita. Um, but that game is so hard, I don't know how people can speedrun a randomly generated game like that. <laughs> well, so it's about internalizing the rules and the logic of the game, right? That's yeah. The, that's the, the thing that happens after you get... I don't know. I, I'm probably... 200 hours on a couple of different platforms, like 200 hours on the PlayStation, 200 hours on the Xbox, 200 hours on the PC. Wow. Says, I mean, it's, it's a lot of Spelunky. Um, you like when you watch the people who are good at speed running Spelunky, they, you get an intuition for how the levels are constructed based on the random, on how the, the random generator works. And that makes a lot of things, um, kind of possible i guess for that game okay yeah i don't i I was trying to see how many games i played on the vita and i can't tell without spending more time on it than i want to want to right now yeah Um, it's 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 kind of like understanding the uh, the game's rule sets and how things can work in tandem with other things which in a game like spelunky that has a lot of different items a lot of different npcs that all react differently a lot of monsters it's an incredible amount of learning and figuring things out well, and, and so the other thing that's neat is there's a there's a really there's a secret progression to that game beyond the just get to four four and kill the boss, um, and there's I think actually probably a couple of those if you want to get technical, um, and they're related but not not tightly. It's like a it's a sequence of events that you have to. I mean, I think we're probably past the statute of limitations for spoilers on Spelunky, but but um, and it's probably stuff you'd never discover without the help of the internet if you're a normal human being but but you 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 know you find these items and they make no sense or they seem underpowered or whatever and then you use that item to unlock another item and that item to unlock another item and that item to unlock another item and then all of a sudden you find a secret level that takes you to the the real boss of the game and that boss is hard enough that i've never beat him which is one of my great shames as a as a player of games um but it's there's 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 enough challenge inside this game that everybody already really knows everything about already at this point that 
you know, if you want to be Bananasaurus Rex and do the solo eggplant run, I think it was Bananasaurus. I hope I hope that's who it was. I'm going to feel like a heel if it was wrong. Um, <laughs> but but, you know, there's there's enough weird stuff in that game that you can build your own challenges to to keep me occupied for for a really long time, I think. And I still, that's, like I said, I still haven't beat Yama, so I have that yeah. first. Well, that's good for it, you know, being trapped and all that kind of thing. Have you ever had the chance to speak to Derek Yu about Spelunky? I, I haven't. Um, I, you know, we do this video game show on on Foo, um, and at some point, I would love to see if I can uh, get in touch with him and get him to come on and and bring some Spelunky assets if he's not sick to death of talking about it already. And, and, <laughs> well, he and just wrote a book, so I think he'd be okay about talking about maybe, it. Maybe, yeah, I, I would hope so. Um, so I, yeah. I want I want him I want to get him on here and I, I'm very interested to see what games he would choose. Oh, I, I, I uh, yes, I would love I would totally listen to that. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah, but yes, Spelunky fascinates me. It 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 like roguelikes I feel are limited by the fact that they have to be certain things and this whole random generated thing or that kind of thing but i feel like the controls and the feel of games like rogue legacy spelunky the controls are so perfect that they have that pick up and play because they just feel so good in your hands even even when things are going wrong well there's this there's a it's something i've been thinking about as a person who's more or less an indie building a thing that's not a video game but uses a lot of game stuff yeah, and and you know the difference between a big triple A game like GTA or or Uncharted Four or something like that, and a game like Spelunky is that you know a, a person with a one or two person team has to rely on mechanics and procedural generated stuff way more than you know it, you you couldn't make Spelunky and just generate twenty five thousand levels and assume that nobody's going to get to the end of the twenty five thousand levels. 25,000 levels. It's much easier for him to build a tool that then generates those levels procedurally and then figure out how to make that fair than it is for him to hire the 35 people or 40 people that it would take to, to generate all that art. So he, he, he leans on mechanics, whereas uncharted, they, they'll, they won't hesitate to do something crazy, like build a one-off mechanic to show Nathan Drake eating an apple as he's walking through this environment and also build these amazing, unbelievably rich environments that you spend like 45 seconds running through on the way to your, <laughs> to, 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 to the next objective. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm pretty heavy on those procedural kind of, kind of mechanically heavy games. Yeah. As a jet, as a general rule, less so on this list actually than, than the normal. So um, I don't remember where I was going, going with that at all, <laughs> but well, I, I think, I think yeah. we can move on from this one. We're going to move on from a hard game to another hard game anyway. So keeping in line with mechanics and hardcore fan bases who do crazy things in very difficult games, we're going to listen to some music from the next game and we're going to talk about it. Thank you. 
so the next game on your list today, Will, is a game developed by From Software and directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki. It's the sequel to the relatively unknown on release PlayStation 3 title Demon Souls, and it was originally released for the Xbox 360 and PS3 in October of 2011. It's the dark fantasy action RPG that has just taken the gaming world by storm in multiple ways. Now on its third, uh, third game in the series, it's Dark Souls. Yeah. Will, you've chosen Dark Souls. I yeah. would probably choose Dark Souls as well. Please explain to me why you have chosen Dark Souls. So I um, I have long had a kind of fascination with weird Japanese games, um, starting, you know, in the in with pretty much the entire NES catalog when I was a kid. And and more recently with the kind of stuff that came out on the PS2, you know, your Katamari Damacy's, your Okami's and, and yeah. the kind of kind of what seemed like fringe games in the US. And and so I picked up I've always as a result of that, I've always had an appreciation for From because they've made a bunch of um I want to say that they did 3D dot game heroes and and uh, <clears throat> is that right games, or no? Uh I don't know about 3D dot heroes, but they did games like uh Kingsfield, Armored Core, Chrome Hounds. Uh, Cro- yeah. Yeah. Those not 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 the upper echelons of Japanese gaming industry, but were always sort of floating about. Yeah, and they they had a kind of different they had a kind of different texture than Western games did, especially around the same time. Um, so so I would always like basically I'm, this is my long way of saying, hey, if somebody said, hey, here's this weird Japanese game, you might want to check it out. I I'll always spring for the sixty bucks, right? So demons. That's how I found Demon Souls, and I I played that before i realized that there was a giant and it may have even been before there really was a giant internet community of people figuring out how that game worked um and i i hit the wall really really early but then i found a spot that i could just sit there and farm souls for against some skeletons that were easy to kill for a while <laughs> and i did that and then all of a sudden i went and took another shot at the boss that i had a hard time with and i and i i never beat that game but I played enough of it that I was really satisfied. And I played kind of a lot of it, probably, if you'd looked at hours played. Um, and I realized that there was something neat there. And then I, I started talking about it with friends and people in the games industry. And I was at a at dinner with a designer one day and was like, hey, he's like, what are you guys? What do you guys actually play now? And I said, well, I've been playing this thing called Demon Souls. He's like, why the hell would you play that? It's really, really hard. And I look back on it now. It's probably a trap question. But it was the first thing I'd played in a long time, probably since EverQuest, that captured that world of mystery. You know, I couldn't just go to GameFAQs and look and see how the whole thing worked. Yeah. Um, with Demon's Souls, it was very much that n- not many. very n- not it, There wasn't many Western reviews either. It was very much, you were kind of on your own. Yeah. And and that was the, that was, um, the, the guys at, at, um, who made EverQuest? Verant, Sony, Sony Online. Sony used, Online. Yeah, used to say that there were um, a handful of different types of gamers, and and people either like combat, or they like PvP, or they like exploration, or they like the social aspects of those games. And for me, the exploration and like figuring out how the world works has always been one of my one of my core motivations in games. And the Dark okay. Souls games have that in a way that like no AAA games really have anymore. Um, so, so yeah. And I, having played all of them, but beaten none, you know, including Bloodborne, including Demon Souls, I think that Dark Souls is probably my 
favorite of those worlds. Um, despite the fact that I've got further there than anything else, I, I that's the one I would like to load up the PC version with all the mods that make it playable and and <laughs> and kind of get into and sink my teeth in again. And <clears throat> it's such a, a I find it amazing we can talk about Dark Souls and I think it's okay to talk about a game and have not finished it um because especially with dark souls because you might have played that game for 60 to 70 hours and not finished it that's but probably ex- about right yeah yeah and the experience you've had is so unique as well like the back and forth like what you've had troubles with might be different to what someone else has had troubles with and how things have played out are very different i think that's what's so special about dark souls and i don't think you particularly have to have finished dark souls to really be able to understand why that game is as good as it is or why it's as popular as it is. Well, if nothing like at the, the thing that you realize within the first 20 or 30 minutes of playing that game is that it has a, it has, what are the games like, like um, God of War and those games called the, the action com. Uh, there's a, anyway, it has a really <laughs> tight combat system. That's unlike anything that, that you play in a traditional Western RPG, you know, where you yeah. walk up and just mash the A button or the attack button until, until uh, hack and slash type yeah. games. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that was the first hook for me with demon souls, right? Like that it's this very precise timing based, almost, almost like the precision of like a fighting game or something like that. Um, and, and that was, that was enough to get me hooked on demon souls. And then I kind of started digging deeper. And at some point I'll probably go back and replay that, 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 I think I'm probably good enough at those games now to take a stab at that again. Um, but, but dark souls, I love, like, I, I just love that world. I love coming into Firelink and walking, walking past this, you know, running past the skeletons into the tube, into undead Berg, the bridge with the dragon on it, where you get the Drake sword and, and, you know, going up to the cathedral and around the long way and, and all the different places. I just want, I just want to kind of steep in that world because it's it's so 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 well realized and such a um like especially given the the limitations of the consoles at the time like to have a world that you could stand on top of the cathedral and look down and see undead Ber- lower undead berg which was a long way away yeah. is incredible now of course that all breaks down when you get to blight town but but you know <laughs> and then the frame rate is sometimes unbearable yeah how many times did you fall <laughs> off that 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 upper scaffolding as you were trying to I, make your way down I, to the spider? i love i love dark souls but i absolutely hate blight town i know there are a lot of people out there oh. who do enjoy its little quirks but no i i hate it's too dark i'm not a fan of dark environments in video games um it's too dark the frame rate's horrible and the enemies down there annoy me and platforming in and dark poison. souls yeah yeah and poison and Ugh. platforming in dark souls uh i'm not very good at the whole running and jumping at the end of your run cycle uh so got to get that timing on that, fr- yeah. on that right frame of animation or else you're going <laughs> to fall to your doom so as much as I love Dark Souls, Blight Town is a blight on that game for me. But <laughs> but 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 yeah, just just like the fact that that game gave you the option, like so. I have a really my my question. If I could talk to the folks who made that game, I would like to know if the things that we all exploited in that game, like the Drake Sword and like the spot, um, I can't remember what, what what the name of the area is, but the spot in the forest where you could run where you could path a bunch of NPCs off a cliff and farm souls really early in the game to, to level up and, and kind of over level yourself for the next areas. Like, yeah. I, I want to know how much of that stuff was intentional and how much of it's just jank. And, and I, 
I honestly think it's all intentional. I think so, every, so do I, yeah. I think everything about Dark Souls is crafted to be the way it is. And I think people that think they're finding out secrets and stuff, I think they're always meant to be there. It just seems like such a per- like everything has a perfect place that it's meant to be in. Enemies are in the positions they're in after hours and hours and hours of playtesting and figuring out what works. I think that's what's so special about Dark Souls in itself is that the world is so perfectly crafted. Well, and the first one, I think more so because I feel like they probably spent. I mean, you always feel like that with the second and and with the sequels, right? But it, it feels like yeah. they took the lessons they learned from the first game and they built this cohesive um, kind of kind of. Um, uh, it's not linear, but it's a world that's all connected in a way that Demon Souls kind of wasn't. Yeah, like an interconnected. Uh, yeah, accent. yeah. And and like the fact that they gave you the option to fall off of a ledge to a place that you may survive the fall because you'd land in water or whatever, but then you'd be immediately killed over and over and over <laughs> again on the corpse run was was like it it. I, I have to imagine at some point those those guys must have played EverQuest or something like that, one of the spawns of EverQuest that was that was hard, because it 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 scratches the same itch in a single player way that was much more kind of conducive for for my the the place in my life that I was when those games came out. So, yeah, I I just love them. I I think they're I think it's it's incredible, and I'm glad to know that you think that that stuff's intentional too. I always I always wonder, yeah, because <laughs> um, it seems. Like the fact that you could path five really high level guys, you'd never have a chance of killing on your own off the edge of the map and just reap souls benefits over and over again. And oh, by the way, there's a there's a shrine, a, a, a fire right next to that. A little I, too I just, convenient to me. I just, I just feel that someone like Hidetaka Miyazaki, someone who would make a game like Dark Souls in the way that it is, you feel like the the little details in that game lead to maybe a personality of someone who would be exceptionally meticulous yeah. and want to introduce things that would cut uh, you know convent obviously dark soul breaks away from conventional gameplay quite a bit so i feel like they're maybe trying to do more they were like okay we've done all these very different things but how can we make the world a little more different from you know a standard fantasy game where you're going up and down a castle and that kind of thing and i feel like someone like miyazaki would sit there for hours wondering i wonder if i cut this bit of collision out and i i remove this wall i wonder if you fell down here where you'd end up and he probably spent just hours thinking about oh i could introduce little elements here and put like a skeleton behind a door here and and it would bring all these I feel like that's his personality. Someone who, who someone who has the idea of Dark Souls in their head has to be that type of person. I, I let me tell you, I I want to believe, and then and then like we haven't even talked about the multiplayer, which which layers on all this. You know, there, there's again like it's like an onion; you just keep peeling away, and it gets crazier and crazier. Yeah. Um, and and like that's all stuff that I never got far enough in the game to really engage with beyond the most superficial level of like you know, calling in somebody to help me beat a boss that I was having trouble with or, or whatever. Um, you know, and you see the stuff like they did with, the, like the, like they did with Chrome Hounds, where you have all this interesting, like, in-world communication or lack thereof, you know, where, with, you know, with, in Chrome Hounds, if, you, I, I want to say, prior to the release of groups on the Xbox 360, where you could, you know, party up with your friends before you jumped into a game, you you if you didn't have communications if you hadn't captured the communications towers and chrome hounds then you couldn't use the in-game voice right 
Like it just didn't work because you didn't have yeah. radios. And yeah. and and he they took he he took that kind of stuff, those kinds of those kinds of kind of like weird twists on on stuff that we just take for granted in modern games and built this thing that people have played 20 and 30 times. So like, I still subscribe to the dark souls Reddit, even though I haven't played the game in two or three years. And I just love seeing what those guys are doing now, (laughs) you know, what five years after the game came out, something like that. Yeah. It's amazing. It it just, even like speaking of the multiplayer leading back to that type of personality of a creator, it feels very unilateral that, it, to, Miyazaki would make sense that you weren't allowed to access multiplayer unless you had a certain item. Yeah. Because you'd be like, in real life, why would you be able to just do this automatically? If you don't have no, a you, cable you, modem, you can't connect yeah, to the internet. Exactly. And, and I feel like in that, like to summon someone in like a magical world, you'd have to have a magical item. And I feel like that is what runs through his head. It's like, how would you be able to defeat a boss unless you had like a certain, you know, a weapon or something? You can't just walk in and do things. And I feel like that's how he did as in Chrome Hands with the radio and then uh, in Dark Souls with, you know, the various different things through the series that allow you to summon players. Well, and and the, so the other thing is those boss encounters, the boss encounters in Dark Souls and all of the Souls games really are so um, deliberate and intentional and well-designed and and they avoid they avoid so many of the gimmicks of modern games you know the flashing red spot that you shoot the arrow at to kill the guy yeah. um well although sometimes you know like i said with the drake sword the the dragon dangles its tail over the edge of the thing daring you to <laughs> shoot it so so yeah like it's it's just it's just an amazing game um it's funny i'm starting to because i've spoken a lot surprising uh, unsurprisingly spoken a lot about dark souls on this show and it's been chosen imagine. <laughs> it's been chosen quite a few times now and I'm starting to feel like the more we talk about Dark Souls is the more we talk about games like Mario 64 or, you know, Ocarina of Time and all these gameplay revolutions in very certain parts of the gameplay industry's history. And I feel like Dark Souls now is, you know, it's 2011. That's when, like, games like Skyrim came out. We're starting to feel like what that game did is influencing games that we're playing right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely asynchronous multiplayer the the interconnected worlds and it's gonna be a game that's gonna be spoken about it's not just a good game but it's a game that is gonna for what it did and what it bought into the world is gonna be talked about for a very long time well it mainstreamed a bunch of really kind of fringe concepts that that were in experimental games and small games um and and you know, the conversation I had with my my game developer friend when I was playing Demon Souls ended with, oh, but nobody's going to buy that, right? It's too hard. Nobody wants to take that beating over and over again. <laughs> and now it's this this juggernaut. So um, I, I, I hope that that means we'll see more diversity in not just, you know, in, in the difficulty of games and the kind of mechanic mechanical weirdness of, of games. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. Well, you can take it with you, and you can finally finish it in 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 the in the world of Shadow of the Colossus. I don't know if I'm good enough for that, but uh, you know, I'll leave you, my you head are, against it you for are. a while. You you can do it. You can do it. I believe in you. Will I? Th- I feel like if you can if you can rule the galaxy in games like Stellaris, and you can 
win games in Overwatch, I feel like you can do Dark Souls. I, you can do it. I, I pre- I'll tell to take that vote of confidence with me as the one of the last things that I, the last conversations I have with another uh, human being. <laughs> yeah, I, you've got all the time in the world to beat your head against uh, so, uh, Shadow of the Club. I, Stone Temples, you've got, you've got all the time in the world to beat your head against a Stone Temple trying to beat Ornstein and Smo in Dark Souls. Oh, yeah. Still, that, yeah. It still gives me nightmares looking at those golden shiny bastards very much. <laughs> it's, it, it, look, it's still not as bad as the one of the first bosses in Demon Souls that you come to. That's like the blob with the spears oh, and the, the yeah, phalanx. Yeah. That yeah. thing. Oh Ugh. god, I, that that almost was the end of the of Souls games for me. I could have missed all this beauty. <sighs> And now we go on a 20-minute chat of why we hate Dark Souls. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's about time we move on to another crazy Japanese Japanese games. I think we could create our own podcast about crazy Japanese games. Well, with I'm me game. being, I'm, I'm, I have recently started getting into collecting obscure Japanese DS and Vita games. And there are some crazy games out there. Oh, I'm sure. The handhelds especially got <laughs> yeah, bananas. Yeah, absolutely. In Japan, the Vita is uh, renowned for just booby games, but some of these booby games have some very interesting game design concepts in them. But we're going to talk about another crazy Japanese experimental game now, and uh, a game that's coming back. It's coming back this year as well in a very interesting form that will mean a lot to yourself in VR. So let's listen to some excellent music from this next game, and let's talk about it. So the next game we're going to talk about, Will, is an on-rails shooter trance synthesthesia colorful explosion directed by Tetsuya Mizuguchi, developed by Sega and former team members of the uh, guys who made Panzer Dragoon Saga. It originally released for the Dreamcast in 2001 and then later on the PlayStation 2 and then the Xbox 360. It's coming back this year uh, with a PlayStation VR compatible HD version. Uh, It's Res. Yeah, so I think this is probably my... Like it, it, this is this is my nostalgia play, uh, I guess, on the list, right? This is a game. It's probably what forty minutes from start to finish. It's not yeah. super difficult, but it is it is challenging. Um, but it's probably my all time favorite rhythm game slash arcade game shooter thing. Um, <laughs> it's hard to describe exactly what Res is. <laughs> yeah, you you're a you're a you're a person thing spaceship maybe you're flying through you have to hold down the button and release it and you, you shoot other squares it looks like an old vector game in a lot of times um no i i so i i, I found res late i didn't have a playstation 2 
for a long time. And I came in late on the Dreamcast. I think I bought the Dreamcast the day that they announced they were canceling it when they suddenly <laughs> got really cheap and I wanted to get uh, Samba D'Amigo before the controllers went away. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's a game, the music and the game, it, just as a, as a one cohesive package, it's, it's the perfect kind of arcade game, I think. Yeah. Like I, I could see an alternate universe where arcades never went away, where, where Miz made this game and, and put it in an arcade and you put 25 cents in and the person who was really good could get to the end on a quarter. And, and I, I, I love it for that. And I love the music and I, I, I love the visual aesthetic. It, it's the most, I guess for a long time, it was the most cyberpunk ass cyberpunk game I'd ever seen. Um, it's it's just it, I smile when I think about Res, and I, I it's been too long since I played it. So, um, are yeah. you looking for? I imagine you're looking forward. Then have you tried the VR compatible version yet? I have and, not donned the suit. I was going to say I was wondering if you'd donned the suit. No, no. Uh, they announced that after I stopped working at Tested, so there was no no legitimate reason for me to weasel my way into a demo. Oh last year. no, <laughs> um, should have should have kept going. <laughs> I, I I look I I can I'm gonna I'm gonna bug my PlayStation friends at some point to 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 get in there and and see that thing. Um, I am so just philosophically. You know, I come from the VR, the burgeoning school of VR thought that you should not do things that make your audience or customers feel like they're going to throw up. And, <laughs> you know, Res, because it's a rails, it's an on rails shooter, there's going to be camera movement, which is breaking one of the one of the rules of VR. You shouldn't you, you should shouldn't move the camera. You should be very careful when you move the camera. Fast um, camera movement as well. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm optimistic. I'm gonna I'll buy it and play it regardless um, of how. And I don't get motion sick, so it's not a problem for me. I can sit on my thro- holier than thou throne and say, this person <laughs> who's a genius and has made one of my all time favorite games is 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 doing something that's bad for virtual reality. Um, but uh, in fairness, the people that I've talked to that have played it haven't reported discomfort from from Res okay. that I'm aware of. Well, um, maybe, 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 because it's uh, the localization and it's being helped by the excellent guys at Eight Full Play. Who oh, nice! Eightful. So maybe you can speak with those guys about getting Miz on f- uh, an episode of VR, and you can have the Synthesia suit as well. I don't think I can handle that much. That much. That awesome. would that would be that would be such an incre- incredible experience. Um. Yeah. He. He's. He's an awesome awesome always an awesome interview and has such such wonderful ideas about what games should do part of me is bummed like i'm excited that he's making this because i think that this is probably the game with the with the synthesia suit and the whole whole thing is probably the game that he was dreaming of when he first made res for i guess the was it the dreamcast yeah it was the dreamcast yeah yeah and and like i'm excited that he's getting to do that but i i really wish he would come out and 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 i wish he was making new games more than he is these days so well the the last sort of thing we saw was child of eden which was like a spiritual successor of res but it was still continuing on that sort of synthesia crazy experience i and, um, and i like I, i'm fine if he if that's what the if that's what the new new things are but um but yeah i i um yeah i i just wish there were more 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 Miz games, please. <laughs> well, maybe after Res VR sort of re-sparks interest in those type of games, 
you, you might see some more. Well, you might, but I'm going to be on a. De- I'm going to be stuck on an oh, island that's someplace, true. and I'm not going to ever know about this. I'm. I'm maybe profoundly I, 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 disappointed. I have broken the rules before about messages in a bottle, so maybe. Okay. Okay. Maybe I can if if a game I deem worthy of being sent to you that's a new game from Miz I'll send it over to you. So does Res VR count as part of the Res Ouvre or is it a separate uh, mm. title unto well, itself? Well, I think with Res V with PlayStation VR being a commercial package for consoles and mm-hmm. with uh, obviously the oculus and vive you can sort of do a lot of hacking you do a lot of modding as well so that's maybe a little bit off the limits in case you sort of send messages through the internet to people through special vr programs but with a like a commercial product like playstation vr i think we could send you a vr headset f- for this because I, I believe you, yeah and the okay. disc so i because i believe you can play you can play the game without the vr uh, I think so, yes. Yeah. So maybe we can send you the VR package as well. Because I wouldn't want a big Res fan like yourself to, and uh, also someone working in VR to miss out on such a sort of perfect merging of the worlds that you both like. The, the last gasp of a new game for, for uh, poor stranded me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we, so we, can, we, can, we can do that. I have something to look forward to. This is very exciting. <laughs> Don't... <laughs> looking forward to a deserted island in that's that's new <laughs> well i mean at least i get to look forward to the to despite being stranded i get i get a one breath of fresh air for the one remainder breath of, of my air. life i mean that's true i think that's the good true. the good news is i'm a little bit older than most of the people that have been on here so far so i i have less time to while away so um you know it's grim but reality is, is occasionally <laughs> grim. Yeah. so there'll be one christmas and that's it and yeah. it'll be when the, when the res arrives and you'll exactly. and you'll have a vr headset to play just one game it's pretty exciting <laughs> well we're going to move on to another japanese game now as well and uh i, I think it's the oldest game in this list um oh mm, no yeah it's the it? oldest yeah it's the oldest with, a, with a, a bullet yes it's very much the oldest um everquest is a 90s game but this is this is 80s yes so this, this is the oldest game in your list so we're going to listen to some music from the next game and we're going to talk about it Okay, Will, so the penultimate game on your list today, before we send you off, is the fixed shooter arcade game that was developed by Namco in Japan and published by Midway in North America. It was released all the way back originally in 1981 and has had an amalgamation of many different types. Um, but this game is the arcade game, Galaga. 
Yeah, it's the only arcade game I've ever really been good at. I mean, I'm I'm reasonably competent at Donkey Kong, but it's also the reason I'm good at it is because I've spent more time playing it than anything else in arcades, and it's one of those like I I was at a place today that had a, a Galaga machine in the quarter, and I immediately reached into my pocket to see if there was a quarter there. Um, cause I, like, if I see a Galaga machine, I will sit down and play a game or two of Galaga and see, you know, see how, see if, I mean, I, I'll play, let's be honest, I'll play long enough to get the high score on the machine, assuming it's not an unattain- unattainable goal. And, um, yeah, it's, it's my favorite arcade game. So when, where were you at in your life when you were playing Galaga? Were you playing a lot of arcade games anyway, or did you already have like a home console and you were playing more games at home? So I'm, I, um, I guess it, you said it came out in 81 or 82? 81. I was six in 81 and I okay. probably didn't see Galaga mm. for three, three or four years. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Northeast Tennessee and we had an arcade in the mall, uh, which was not at all crassly named the gold mine by its owners. <laughs> um, and at that time in my life, Galaga, when I was, when I was going to that arcade, Galaga and Miss Pac-Man and those early classics, Donkey Kong, stuff like that were kind of the old games in the back that the old guys that were smoking cigarettes played, maybe gambling a little bit. Um, so the kids were all up front playing Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter and the stuff like the smash em ups, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and X-Men uh, beat em ups. So I kind of didn't find Galaga. I, I guess if I had to think about it, probably the time I, I played Galaga when, when the guy who had the pinball parlor next to my dad's office had a couple of arcade machines and Galaga was one of them. Um, and that was probably in like 84, 83, 85, maybe. Okay. Um, it's, 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 it's one of the perfect arcade games, right? Like that and Donkey Kong and Miss Pac-Man, they're really simple game designs that you can play endlessly. And even though they're very repetitive, you know, the, the amount of skill required to navigate and and get a good game, um, is, is really, really high. Then the skill ceiling for players is really high, which is what's appealing to me. That was, that was the fun, uh, the funny thing about games like that. They were, Unlike games uh, like the beat-em-ups, like the X-Men game or the Turtles game, um, they were games that allowed you to get quite a bit for your first quarter without instantly getting demolished and having to put another in. But then to be able to be good at those games, it took hours and hours and hours of practice. Well, but so unlike something like Donkey Kong, which is very unforgiving, especially on specific boards, Galaga, there's a real progression... Um, and you can see advancement as you go. So I, I was, you know, seeing as this is one of the few games that I'm going to play for the rest of my life, I was really worried about getting frustrated and not wanting to play it anymore. Um, so while I am a reasonably competent Donkey Kong player, I feel like, you know, if I want to gradually work over the remainder of my life toward a perfect Gallagher game, I think that's probably an attainable goal if I really, you know, buckle down and play a couple hours a day uh, from now till eternity. Is there a specific version of the game uh, that you want to take with you, or would you want oh, yeah. one of those classic arcade? Oh, I would cabinets? take the cut. Cla- yeah, of course it has to be. Look, if you're playing Galaga and you're not playing it on, I mean, I'll allow a four way joystick, but if you're trying to play it on an eight way joystick, you're gonna you're gonna have a bad time. Um, <laughs> I I like the arcade games that are just the left and right buttons and then the fire button. 
But I guess in a pinch, like, what's your ruling on arcade cabinets that have two games in them, right? Because there were some, I want to say they were like Pizza Hut cab, uh, uh, cocktail cabinets that had Miss Pac-Man and Galaga in them. Although maybe those, maybe that's apocryphal. I don't know. Well, it's very strange because we're getting to the point now where we've got HD collections like the Shadow of the Colossus and the Ico HD collection, or we have PC where you it's like if you want to take a PC, then you can emulate almost any game in existence. Yeah. Um, so it's very difficult to keep on top of these things of a hypothetical deserted place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if the original Gallagher cabinets were only playing Gallagher, then that's the one we'd give you. Okay, I, I would take a Gallagher cocktail then in that. Assuming we had a nice shady place to put it where glare wasn't going to be a problem. Well, you, well you, you can put it in your stone temple. So that's going okay. to be dark and, and good for the screen. Okay, that's, yeah. So, so yeah, then I would take the cocktail because it's nice to sit down when you're going to really spend some time on this. And, and I'm a little tall for the traditional arcade cabinet. So, so t- before we move on then, um, tell me a bit more about like arcading uh, back then. Uh, that's obviously something that my generation of gamers has completely avoided. Although living in Japan, I've experienced it a little bit as arcades are still absolutely booming here in Japan and they are everywhere. Um, but so, in America, so yeah, go on. Say, no, say no, that. I was, I mean, they were, they were, so when I was a kid, like I said, I grew up in a small town and I didn't, I wasn't lucky enough. I lived relatively far out of town, so it wasn't like we could hop on the bicycle and ride to the arcade or even a convenience store that had like one or two arcade machines in the corner. So which... it was one of those sort of special uh, mums going into town, exper- like yeah. special trips. Yeah. And she'd give a, she'd give me a buck and say, "Go and you know, don't leave there until uh, I come get you." Right. Um, <laughs> the perfect daycare center <laughs> it, well i mean it sounds like horrible parenting but by this point i was probably eight years old and it was a small town everybody knew everybody so it wasn't it wasn't like i was going to be you know stranger dangered in the in the arcade um but there were two kinds of arcades right so there well really three there were like convenience stores where there would be a couple of games maybe a pinball machine in some cases there were seedy kind of arcades like a place where you might have a pool table in the back and there's always some people smoking and maybe yeah. there's there's beers in like paper brown paper bags or 40s or whatever um and funnily enough the gold mine in the mall was a little bit on the seedy side i don't think there was booze there ever but like it, there was definitely some like there were there were some creepy old guys there playing playing uh, uh old arcade games with pinball machines and stuff like that um, and then the stuff that was more kid friendly, the smash em ups, the, the real money extractors were in the front. Um, and then there were kind of, there was like Chuck E. Cheese and stuff like that, which was a much more savory and also simultaneously really terrifying kind of entertainment experience. Um, if you, if you, if you never went to Chuck E. Cheese with a kid that wasn't young enough to know that the terrifying mouse animatronics on the stage were robots and not just some sort of horrible monsters that were out to eat them. You've really, you've really missed out. It's a, it's a transformative <laughs> experience to watch a, a small child feel unimaginable dread for no apparent reason. Um, so we took my sister to one of those when I was, when I, I, that's where I always had birthdays when I was of the arcade ages and we played games like Xevious and, and, um, uh, the kind of the combat, you know, the fighting games were occasionally there, but they were a little seedier, I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was it was a 
Like there were games that I definitely didn't play. I I never played Mortal Kombat and and Street Fighter and those kinds of games. Um, I spent a lot of time playing. I can't remember what it was Stunt Driver. The, it was a sit down, um, like a, a flat shaded driving game with a with a tight steering wheel, not a pole position kind of spinny steering wheel, uh, where you could do loop to loops and stuff like that. I got I got pretty good at that. And then I played a lot of Ninja Turtles and Simpsons and and those kinds of beat 'em ups, which. When you go and load those up on on a, one of those arcade collections or Mame or something, you realize exactly how crass uh, mechanically those games were and how they were designed. <laughs> in, in the same way that your your um, Clash Royale and and modern free to play games are um, to extract money from you as quickly as possible. So anyway, yeah, that arc- I, I wasn't a big arcade culture kid though. I didn't have enough access, sadly. But you can have Gallagher, so you can maybe relive some of those memories. As long as there's a cup holder, I'll be. I, I'm. I'm down. I think that's a. That's that's my bar for Gallagher machines. <laughs> well, even if not, you could sort of fashion one. I, I, I can take a coconut husk and a some sort of um, a Colossus soul and and make something that'll <laughs> stick on there. <laughs> yeah, you definitely could. <laughs> well, we're going to move on to your final game now, and it's a very interesting one as well. A uh, game that's ne- not appeared uh, on the show before. Um, really? And again, yep. No, it hasn't. Wow. And it's a game I have yet to try out. I think it's also one of those games where I think I'm just too stupid to get the most out of this game. So we're going to listen to some music from the next game. And then we're going to try and get ourselves into space. So let's dive straight into it. Will, the final game on your list today, the final game you'll be taking with you to the world of Shadow of the Colossus, uh, a game that is pretty much on almost every platform now. It's on PC, it's on PlayStation 4, it's on Xbox One, it's on the Wii U as well. Uh, well, yet to be released on the Wii U, but it is coming. Um, wow. It's a space flight simulator developed by Squad. Um, it's this game where you <laughs> you try and get yourself into space with these humanoid aliens known as the Kerbals. Uh, the game features absolutely to the T realistic orbital physics engine that has been used by NASA by SpaceX. Um, it's Kerbal Space Program. Yeah. So um, my first exposure, I, th- I want to say that Kerbal came out in early access when I was at Tested. When Tested was relatively new, and we had been doing. Um, like we had done Minecraft streams early and stuff like that, and and we're kind of like we introduced the giant bomb guys to Minecraft, I think, and and scared them off for maybe ever. Um, <laughs> I, like I, I, just to be clear, they were it was something they were aware of, but maybe they hadn't really spent a whole lot of time watching or or seeing, and we forced them to watch it. Um, 
but I started playing Kerbal because they did the early access thing that Minecraft did and they released it and it was cheap at the beginning. And it got more expensive as time went on. And I love space stuff. I, I, I'm a NASA junkie. I applied to be an astronaut twice now. Um, wow, really? Once when I was in fourth grade, they, right before the Challenger disaster, which they, they didn't ever. I mean, I got a nice letter from the president that said, hey, thanks for writing. We, we're not going to do any kids in space right now. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's taking taking a few days to understand how Kerbal works and, and how to play Kerbal taught me more about orbital dynamics and how how actual space works than than 30 years of being a space nerd um so so yeah like it's it's like many of the games on my list it's really there's a lot of depth there you know it's a set your own goals kind of game so i mean i guess there's there's scenarios and stuff that you can do that require you to do things but it basically is a parts it's a it has a bunch of different parts um, that let you build everything from space planes to to Gemini and Mercury era capsules to unmanned probes to the International Space Station or an analog thereof to moon landers and Mars rovers and and all everything in between. Yeah. Um, and when you add the stuff that's hold on, do I get mods? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you can you can have some mods. Yeah. Whew. So if you add mods in, um, then then you can get even deeper than what they've built and is part of the, the core package. And the, the goal initially is really just to make a rocket that gets a capsule to orbit or, or to, to do a suborbital flight. Like we did in the early days of the Mercury program in the United States. Um, and, and that is, it turns out like profoundly difficult, even, even when you just want the rocket to go up and come back down like you can mess that up and accidentally fire the rocket into orbit where the your Kerbal dies. I mean, they don't actually die, but he would die and be rescued beyond rescue. Um, <laughs> you can you can accidentally inject into an orbit. I fired guys out of the solar system, um, but you also along the way learn how to do transfer orbits and and what a Holman transfer actually is and and. Um, you know, when to fire anterior grade, how to make an orbit tighter, how to make an orbit wider, how to make it more round, all, all the things that um, when you watch something like the Martian are, are impenetrable and terrifying. You're suddenly like, Oh yeah, no, that actually makes sense. This is, this is really neat. You learn, you learn why, for example, the Voyager probes did this multi-year tour of the solar system on the way to, you know, to, to, alpha centauri or wherever they're going yeah um and and that so the game is almost secondary to me understanding space better from a, on a personal level who who are these guys at squad then to be able to create such a game that it, it's not perfect but is notably been talked about by people at nasa and spacex yeah, it's. Um, I assume they're just enormous nerds that are good at math, right? I mean, it's there's no nothing fan like it's just physics, physics and and you know yeah. friction and and gravity and orbits and all that kind of stuff. The thing that they did is they um, they built a software interface that abstracts out the really hard stuff and kind of makes yeah. it easy for for normal people to understand. Um, the thing that's interesting to me about it is that we talk to people. 
uh, at tested and and kids come up and they're like hey I, you know thank you for recommending Kerbal on the podcast or whatever I I am gonna go be an aeronautical engineer now because I spent you know the last two years learning how to how to do orbit transfers and stuff like that in Kerbal and and that's what I want to do with my life which is which wow. is rad that um, is really rad um but it makes something that's man I haven't really thought about this before but when when you look at what we're trying to do with Foo and VR, we're trying to make stuff that's impossible, accessible to everybody. And yeah. that's what the squad folks did with Kerbal is they took something that's really, really unreachable for almost everyone and made it accessible. And I mean, it's a game. I don't know if it's a fun game for most people, but it becomes a fun game. If you, if you give it enough time, um, once you understand the basics like you, you first, first you get to suborbital flight, and then you learn how to reach an orbit, and then you learn how to make a rocket that can get you to orbit, and then actually return you without killing you, um, and then you start looking at like, oh well, okay, so what are we going to do next? Are we going to send probes to other planets? Are we going to try to do a manned moon, uh, manned moon landing? Are we going to go to the Kerbal equivalent of Mars, which is so far out of reach as to be twenty years in the future for me? Um, but luckily I'll have some time to work on that and, and you know, really perfect my designs. It's really funny. I don't know why I've never played Kerbal. Um, I've watched lots of GIFs of it and I've kind of on the fringe of seen what is potentially possible with it. And as someone who studied astrophysics for a year in university, <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't, I never sort of tried it or caught on. Might um, be too real for you, right? <laughs> well I, I don't know I, I i think i fear i would just be too stupid <laughs> to do it um but tell me about your greatest accomplishment in kerbal then so well, consider all these things you learn over a period of time what's the best mission that you that's happened um okay so there's there's two things one is that while kerbal has a reputation of being a very fair and reasonable simulation of these these really complex things to the point that people use it at nasa and stuff like that as a as a demonstration um it does also allow you to do things that are patently ridiculous impossible <laughs> yes. and really really dumb so um i think it's called asparagus staging is where you um basically build a bunch of liquid fueled rockets and then you pump you turn on all the rockets at the same time and you pump the fuel from one tank to the next, to the next, to the next, so that when one tank runs out of fuel, you just drop that tank and that engine that's attached to it. And you keep doing this and you can build these insane, like 25, 30 rocket asparagus staged launchers that are completely impractical, would never, ever work in the real world, but have really amazing performance and are really fun to fly. Um, so so you build that. And then, of course, you, you grab your flight stick or your gamepad or your mouse and keyboard or whatever, and you actually fly the rocket. Um, so I, I, I built like, that's when I want to just kill some time and do something dumb. I fire up Kerbal and I build an enormous asparagus staged rocket and, and, and get, get silly. Um, probably the most impressive thing I've done is mimicking the, like the mid stage Apollo flights where you, where you, uh, make orbit around the moon. I, I guess in the beginning they just did a, a pass and then turned around and came back. Um, without ever really entering orbit and then and then i've made orbit i haven't actually gotten those guys back yet so um there are some dead kerbals orbiting the moon in, <laughs> in one of my many games um but it, it's it's like it's 
How how long does it take to get to like that <clears throat> stage of gameplay? I, don't know. I mean, if you if you weren't stranded someplace uh, out of contact with humanity, you could probably load up YouTube and and get the gist in a couple of twenty, you know, watching a couple of thirty or forty minute videos, um, at least to mimic what they've done. Whether you understand what's going on and and all that is is different, but but the game abstracts out the hard stuff in a in a pretty good way. And if you get the right mods, then that makes it a little bit easier too. Um, if you want to kind of do it, like I haven't actually done that. I've just kind of, I just kind of load it up and fool around until I figure some stuff out and and then either it sticks or it doesn't. And, and that's, you know, 10 or 20 hours, probably. I don't know. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's in much the same way that Minecraft is a framework for noodling around with like world geometry and architecture. And, and if you want to get really crazy, you can build, you know, integrated circuits with redstone and stuff. This is that, but for making rockets and, and I just, I, I want making rockets is fun. It turns out. So, um, <laughs> well, this too is also in the steam sale. So I may have to decide between Stellaris and Kerbal oh, Space man. Program. You should, you should get Kerbal because Kerbal is a, is a gift that we'll keep on giving for years and years and years. If, if you have the, you, you really don't need a head for like, there's no math. I mean, there's math if you want there to be math, but if you just want to fire some rockets at the sky and see what happens, you don't need math to do that. You just you just need turns out rockets and a match and and then life finds a way. <laughs> that does sound exceptionally good fun. <laughs> um but but then like I said, like you you this is one of those things that you can get on the subreddit for it and see the amazing things that people build here and you know people recreate orbital space stations like Mir and the ISS and stuff like that. You learn how so a few years ago, the NASA and the and the uh, Soviet, or sorry, the Russian space agency started doing what they call a fast transfer to orbit for the Soyuz and and the Progress capsules that go to the space station. And instead of taking like forty eight hours to orbit and catch up, they do it in five. <clears throat> and you didn't kind of appreciate. I didn't appreciate what an incredibly challenging thing. And how much precision is required to do that kind of a a tight um, a tight uh, uh, um, uh, 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 oh god I can't remember what it's called when you when you meet two this has been talking for too long now um, <laughs> uh, when two things meet in space um, anyway orbital uh, transfer is all I'm gonna guess yeah no it's um, <laughs> anyway it doesn't matter um, but two but, things it, it meet each other in space I. Yeah, making That's... making two spaceships smash into each other in space, but not so hard that they explode. <laughs> it's really, really hard. Um, there's a reason, like rocket science, is the high bar for smart guys and 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 people in our in our society. Um, so yeah, like like if you like watching rockets take off and want to learn more about that stuff, there is no more fun way to do that than Kerbal, I think. And and also, I can spend thousands upon thousands of hours you know landing on the moons of Kerbal Saturn whatever they call it so well, I, I'm uh, yeah I'm in for the long haul I guess that sounds like an exceptional way to spend time uh, trapped in a virtual deserted place um so that sounds like an excellent final choice um I <laughs> can you imagine a point where they'd reach like a mod where you could be in VR Kerbal as one of the Kerbals about to take off and oh, experience man, that- 
that would break so many of the VR rules. You'd chunder city in there. <laughs> um, are you are you are you not hoping for an astronaut simulation VR program where you can simulate launching into space? Well, um, you know they have that. There's um there's a Apollo Eleven experience that puts lets you ride up the elevator outside the Saturn V and get a full sense of the scale of that thing. While Buzz Aldrin tells you what he was thinking as he was going up in the elevator on the on the oh, day wow. in July. Um, and then there's also, if you want to get the EVA experience, uh, games like Adrift. Uh, Adrift gives you it has it has some problems in VR in that it does do some of the motion stuff that's not not awesome for a lot of people. But I've never felt more like I was in space than I did, you know, flying around a spacesuit in in Adrift. Okay. Um, that game looks stunning as well. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's 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 a really it's an amazing like if you have a headset it's I think mandatory. If you don't it's really really neat and and quite a good game. But um I lost myself in that when I uh first got my I guess Rift. I can't remember what I played that on. But yeah. Oh, wow. Space. It Space is the final frontier. The final frontier. <laughs> exactly. So will it's been an honor having you on the show today. It's been a pleasure to chat with you about all these wonderful games that you have some exceptional stories about. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, I mean, it's, it's funny because I've spent so many hours playing this and since I'm not, you know, by day, uh, games, a guy who talks about games on the internet, it's been really fun to kind of, kind of think about why I love these games and, and why they're important to me and, and, which games are I, I can't if you told me when I started out with this that I wasn't gonna have a Mario game on my list I would have told you you were a liar um, <laughs> so you know here, here we are so yeah um, it's been a lot of fun and, and thank you so much for having me on no it's been an absolute pleasure um so before I let you go um there is one last question I have to ask you mm-hmm. uh the question I have to ask every guest if you could choose any console to take with you including the back catalog of that console, uh, barring PC, uh, because you could emulate any game possible, so no PC. But if there is a console you could take with you, what console would it be? Oh, man. The barring PC is a real... It's kind of a kind of a low blow since I started out as a PC guy. Um, I So... I have big holes in my console history because when I started at Maximum PC, I didn't I didn't have console. I had a GameCube and a Nintendo. I had a Nintendo sixty. I've had all the Nintendo consoles. I didn't have the first two Playstations, um, and I didn't have a Saturn or any of the you know Neo Geos or three Dos or any of that stuff. So yeah. I, I'm a pretty like I'm a NES Genesis NES um, N sixty four GameCube and then Xbox PS two PS three Wii all that stuff. But I came to the PS2 late. I, I came to the PS2 when Guitar Hero came out. Um, that is I, very late. Yeah, it was. It was the. It was awesome because I was able to get an, a, a dozens of amazing games for like four dollars each at the at the on the used market. Yeah. Um, but I haven't played a lot of those games, so I think because the PlayStation Two can also emulate the PS1, I think I'm going to go with the PS2, despite the fact that that's probably the worst. Like the the. Like those early 3D games, I think hold up worse than anything else in, in the history of games. You know, starting with the Atari <laughs> and going forward, um, just graphically. So yeah, I, let's... but the but the sheer m- amount of games in the back catalog, it makes it a very very safe choice as well. Well, and the stuff that I've and it's it, for most for the most part, like I like 
I rented a lot of SNES of Super Famicom games, right? I I played a lot of NES games and I've gone back to a lot of them over the years. Um I kind of have no interest in the Saturn and and I played as much of the Dreamcast stuff as I want. Um but yeah, the PlayStation and PS2 are kind of kind of virgin territory for me. So, yeah, I'd like to uh I'd like to go out and give those guys a a taste and see what's out there. Well, you can do. So that means we're coming to the end and I have to send you away to the world of Shadow of Colossus now. It's been a good run, I guess. <laughs> I think you've had a good run. Tell, at least at least my daughter will have this podcast to remember me by. So that's, that's good. <laughs> Say your final farewells now. Yeah. yeah, I, I, yeah. Um, this has been a lot of fun, Liam. Thank you so much. Oh, no. It's been an absolute honor having you on the show, Will. As a big fan of yours, it's been amazing. So please... Tell the people, the wonderful people, where they can find you uh, on the internet and also what they should be checking out of yours. Oh, right. The requisite plugs. Well, if you have um, yeah, absolutely. a v- VR headset or are planning on getting a VR headset, I I hope you'll check out the Foo Show. It's on Oculus Home and Steam. Um, at some point, we might make a non-VR version and we'll be coming to Gear VR and PlayStation VR later this year. Um, uh, beyond that, if you want to find out, if, if you're interested in me, you can find me at Will Smith on Twitter. Um, and that's probably the best way to, to, to get in touch with me. If you have questions about stuff we talked about today or, or VR stuff or foo or anything else that we have, we have cooking. Yeah. And absolutely do it. It, It's such an, it's such a very interesting project and I'm really excited to see where it goes. So it should be really good. Um, thank you again for listening to Final Games. Uh, I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Liam BME, where I just generally talk about video games mostly japanese video games at the moment because that's all i have access to and so you'll see some quirky japanese games also you can actually find some videos i'm doing on youtube now uh youtube.com forward slash c forward slash got rare where i'm actually in reviewing now japanese games and whether you should import them based on you know your japanese ability and also whether they're actually any good and worth importing so the first review of the latest Koei Tecmo game, uh, the Attack on Titan PlayStation 4 game, that's coming to the West in a few months, but out here in Japan, is up. And you should definitely check that out if you're interested in Japanese games. Will, yourself, you might, as you're interested in Japanese games, you might also want to have a look. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. Uh, let's see, I imported, oh God, what's the puzzle game that's the Tetris versus um, Puyo Puyo Tetris a few months ago? which I've had a lot of fun with. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know which one. It's a quite big here in Japan at the moment, and it's only available in Japan. Yeah, I know which one you mean. I forget the name of it, though. I, I think it's Puyo Puyo Tetris in the U.S. I don't know. I mean, that's it has an, it has English on the cover, which I, I was like, I don't understand why this game isn't out here. Um, have you played you played Tetris Battle Gaiden, I assume, the old yeah. Super Famicom game? Yeah, that's yeah. my all-time favorite in the kind of versus puzzle fighters with all sorts of weird mechanics layered on top. Oh, excellent. Well, the next review I'm doing is of Dragon Quest Heroes 2. Uh, Dragon Quest Heroes being very popular in the West as well. And uh, it not Dragon Quest Heroes 2 not being announced yet for the West. So I'm currently playing through that as a review. So should you import? So if you are interested in Japanese games, check that out. I also talk about other things, <laughs> other video game related things too. Uh, so please check that out. But once again, thank you for checking out the Final Game Show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. You can find the Final Game Show on Twitter at Final Game Show. You can also email. A lot of people have been emailing me with their own Final Games recently. Uh, a lot of people have 
some people who listen at their place of work have been discussing with their colleagues and they've been having votes on which games they would take as a collective to the island, which is extremely interesting. Oh, man, yeah. Some of, some of the ones that have been coming through have been really interesting. A lot, a lot, of, uh, a lot of Mario, a lot of Zelda. Uh, I think Overwatch has been on one person's list as well as yours, Will. So okay. I think we might be seeing a bit more of that. So if you'd like to send them in, you can, you can send them uh, to us on Twitter as well. And you can also email finalgamespodcast.gmail.com. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Please follow, rate, review, and all that sort of wonderful stuff. Other than that, we will see you next time. So big thank you to Will for coming on today. And goodbye. Bye.